Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. As many of you know, I have been dedicating myself to answering all of your emailed questions by the end of the year, and it is the last day of the year today. It is New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2021, so it's my last chance to answer all of your emailed questions, so let's get into it. This first email is from listener Melissa from Utah. She says, You've been advocating a lot that it's always appropriate for people to cry. I had an ex who seemed to cry at the top, at the drop of a hat anytime I wouldn't do what he wanted. For example, if I wanted to spend time with my family or go out with my friends instead of talking to him on the phone all night, he would sob hysterically. It was a long-distance relationship, and we were both adults in our 20s. Looking back, I really feel like he did it because he worked and because it worked and not because he felt sad but i'm wondering what but i'm wondering what you think can people use crying as a manipulative tactic end of email well the first thing is is yeah short answer is absolutely some people can and will use crying as a manipulative tactic all you have to do is watch young children to realize that and it's not like children are that different from adults uh, you know, not all children do this, but, you know, most do, if not all, at some point. And some kids use it a lot. You know, when they're three, four, five years old, they'll learn that if they cry, they can get people to do what they want, even though they're not particularly sad. And But anyway, uh, so, yes, the answer is yes, some people can use it. But I, I want to scrutinize your first sentence here. You've been advocating a lot that it's always appropriate for people to cry. That's not how I would phrase it. I don't know what you mean exactly by that. Always appropriate for people to cry. What I'm saying is that our society shames people for crying in a really severe and rigid and nearly universal way. That when someone's just crying because they're sad or even if they're they just feel like crying. I mean, uh, people feel like laughing. People feel like sighing. People feel like moping or pouting or um, furrowing their brow. You know, these are just emotional expressions that have little to nothing to do with other people. I mean, uh, I mean, meaning that it doesn't harm others if you're crying. So say someone was manipulatively crying. Well, okay. You could just say like, well, I, I think that they're, I think they're trying to manipulate me, but we have such a, it's, you know, in the same way that people will manipulately laugh, courtesy laughing. Your boss says a stupid joke and you drum up laughter because you feel like you have to in order to please your boss. That's manipulative. That's lying. That's fake laughing. But we don't shame it. You know, you, you, you can look at it and scrutinize it and ask yourself if it's okay or moral or whatever. But when it comes to crying, I just find that. I, I get a fair amount of pushback. People are like, well, you know, what about manipulative lying? Okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, if someone's being a complete a-hole about lying, then 100%. You, you can, but you don't have to shut it down. <laughs> you don't have to be like, stop your crying. How dare you? Which is typically the reaction, regardless of the motivation for lying, even legitimate lying. If someone's manipulatively lying, you can just register that in your mind and choose not to be manipulated. Be like, uh, I think they're... I think they're just trying to trick me in this moment. And if so, then my goodness. And what I have seen a lot in my office and in public is people accusing others of manipulatively lying when they are not. When I watch 90 Day Fiance, for example, I like Danielle. Everyone knows Danielle, I think. And she cries a lot. And 
or Darcy for that matter. And I will always see comments, people saying, oh, that's fake laugh. That's fake crying. That's manipulative lying. And it could be, but it doesn't look that way to me. It looks like legitimate pain. Now, you cannot like someone, including your former partner, and at the same time, recognize that they had legitimate reasons for crying. And I think that we have this reaction as, you know, you're, for example, Melissa, your former partner, who might have been a horrible, manipulative person, but you're going to hang out with your family or your friends and you're telling your your partner this and he's sad about it. And he's just like, oh, you know, you're going to spend time with your friends and family and I feel so neglected. And, you know, probably something traumatic happened to him growing up that makes it difficult for him to cope with that. And so he starts to cry. Now, let's say some of the time it was legit crying, meaning that he legit felt sad. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. He missed you and he wanted more contact with you. He didn't have anyone else to turn to. And, and he was sad and he would cry a lot. And I don't know, again, maybe every single time it was fake. But let's just say that some of the time it wasn't. Well, it's typical for people in your shoes, Melissa, to, especially after you break up and you're looking back, to just frame it like, well, I never hurt that person. That person was always faking their sadness instead of just saying, yeah, sometimes I hurt him. And I don't think it's my fault because I was hanging out with my friends and family. And I think he had a issue about abandonment or something. But um, it wasn't my fault. But, yeah, I think legitimately uh, some or most of the time he was, you know, legitimately sad and and I was hurting his feelings. But that doesn't mean I'm truly to blame for it. And I, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of it or anything. It just was a product of our relationship, I guess. So and I feel like a quick way out of that nuanced gray zone is just to accuse the crier of being manipulative, which I see a lot of people doing. Having said that, Absolutely, some people will use, but crying is a manipulation. But I don't see that very often. You know, I in all my travels, I and I see. You know, there are probably a day doesn't go by where I don't see people crying. I see clients crying. I see students crying. I see people in my personal life crying. You know, I, crying is a regular part of my life. And now maybe I don't have a lot of manipulative people around me, but which I imagine to be true. But I, I'm trying to remember the last time I would have thought someone was manipulating other than a three-year-old who is trying to get a toy. You know, you're at the store and they're like, buy me this toy. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we don't, we can't afford it. And the kid like throws a tantrum and I, you can usually tell when a kid isn't being sincere. Uh, you know, I probably saw that, I don't know, a few years ago or something. <laughs> anyway, next email. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She says, my partner went to visit his family on a different continent for two months. Now that he is back, I have this intense feeling that he has broken up with me. I feel angry and intensely anxious to lose him again. How can an inner conflict between what you know happened between you and your partner and what you feel happened be resolved in a way that doesn't involve ignoring your feelings? End of email. Yeah, it's a good question. So I'm guessing, Anonymous Patron, you have traumas around abandonment and neglect and that was triggered when your partner left the continent for a, a couple months. So your cognitive mind is like, he didn't break up with me. He's not abandoning me, but it intensely feels like he did abandon me. And I'm 
angry at him for abandoning me, but I know that he didn't abandon me. So you're saying, you know, how do I not go with those feelings and ruin my life while also not denying my feelings? And that, that's an excellent, excellent question. And this is, you know, a central question that we concern ourselves daily, which is differentiation. How can we honor our feelings and not suppress them or deny them while also not letting them, um, if they're irrational, which they often are, uh, ruin or run our lives? So the trick is, is to talk about it. So you tell your husband or anyone, I am having so much pain and anger about my husband leaving, even though I don't feel like it's justified. But boy, does it feel bad. Let me tell you how bad it feels. Husband of mine, when you left, it was totally fine. But let me tell you how it triggered me. It triggered all these problems from my past. And, you know, that's another angle anonymous patron is to say it triggered something in the past rather than what you did to me in the present was wrong. And uh, that can be the thing that you can really target because in all likelihood you were legitimately abandoned and or criticized or abused or something left you feeling like, uh, you know, make you made you sensitive to your husband leaving you for a while uh, physically, even though emotionally he hadn't. And so uh, spending time talking about those past events will feel more congruent, you know, say your father abandoned you when you were five or something. And, it, but that's not present in your mind. Your husband leaves for a couple months. You have this intense anger and feeling toward him. And then he comes home and you're just, you, you initially feel angry at him, but then you think about it, you're differentiated as you are in your email. Uh, and you think, oh, this must have, I don't think it has to do with my husband. I think it has to do with my dad. And then you go to therapy, you talk to your husband, you talk to your friends and family, maybe you journal about it, you think about it, maybe you even go to your dad about it. And you're just like, so when my husband left for a couple of months, it totally triggered what you did to me. And then you, you just feel like you're more in the in the congruent zone. There, it would make more sense to be hurt and angry about what happened to you when you were a kid rather than to what happened, what's happening to you in the present. All right, this next email is from listener Laura. She says, could you please talk about resilience? I do not know a single person's success that did not come after an extensive list of failures. What separated them from the rest was the way they handled the major obstacles they encountered. End of email. Yeah, resilience is actually a really complicated psychological concept. Maybe I'll do a deep dive on it at some point. But in a nutshell, and there's lots of different ways of looking at this. There's different kinds of resilience. And there's a lot of research showing that some people are just born with a little bit of resilience. But, of course, your life circumstances and really any circumstance, you, you beat someone down enough. And even though they might have a lot of resilience sort of innately, they're not going to show much resilience when you beat them down sufficiently. But the there are two main things here. One is is the way you see the world. And for example, one of the if there if there is no God, one of the psychological benefits to praying is often the action of appreciating good things in your life. You know, let's thank God for this food. Let's thank God for our health, that kind of stuff. And we seem to benefit psychologically and behaviorally and mood-wise and all sorts of things when we are appreciative and we point out good things. And, and resilient people sometimes 
have a practice of looking on the bright side, looking at the good part of it. They fail, but they look at, well, it's good to learn from my mistakes or, well, I got something good out of it or, well, I didn't really want that anyway or whatever it is. Whereas people who don't see the world that way tend to be less resilient. And there is some choice to the matter. You can choose to look at the world from a locus of control that's outside of yourself or a locus locus of control that's inside yourself or uh, the world will uh, provide a fair situation for me or the world will not provide a fair situation for me which leads to the second factor that's often pointed to which is the circumstances of your life if you have had a string of unfortunate events that were outside of your control like being abused or poverty or a health crisis that obviously you didn't you know cause then it tends to demoralize you and then your perspective tends to change and then you tend to be less resilient having said that some people have been through some horrific horrible ongoing issues and still seem to hold on to a positive attitude also there seems to be some mood effects right if you're prone to depression and you're born from a family of people prone to depression then that can absolutely change your attitude. It can also change the way things feel. And so that can affect resilience. And, you know, so there's a lot of things. But the two things that you can really point to that might help you, my dog is barking, is to think about your attitude, to at least daily appreciate the good things in your life, and maybe even the good things in society, to... um, also take care of yourself to get in connection with yourself to notice the kind of repetitive thoughts that you have that sort of thing all right this next email is from listener lucy from chicago she writes i have a friend who i haven't spoken to because of the conditions she places on our friendship for example if i don't support her business by buying her products then she says i'm not a good friend i believe she has abandonment issues as well as entitlement issues recently she published a book She hasn't spoken to me for five months, and then she sent a link for me to purchase it. I wanted to call to congratulate her, but the first thing she will say is, did you buy my book? The last time I spoke to her was to let her know I couldn't go to her party, and she asked, well, where is my gift? It was very awkward. I'm not good at confrontations, but I want to understand how to reach her. End of email. Yeah, so from your brief description, it sounds like abandonment slash entitlement issues, maybe narcissism. I want to be tentative about that. And it's my version of narcissism, not not the internet version, meaning that you were neglected growing up such that you defensively have a grandiose uh, view of yourself and also you're hyper-focused and preoccupied with narcissistic supply, which could get wrapped up into performance and writing books and selling things, trying to make it in business because you don't want to be a a working stiff like everyone else because you think that you're better than others. And you're in this constant state of trying to get, trying to get ahead, trying to become, you know, successful, quote unquote, so that you can, you know, possibly believe that you're a good person. Of course it doesn't work. It's a running on a treadmill. And then when you, Uh, But at the same time, you know, she's still a human being and she wants friends. So 
her friendship to you is real, but she also has this problem, which, so I can imagine a situation where you're, you're friends and you're good friends and everything's fine, but because of her narcissistic supply, there are times when she needs to, you know, get supply. And so she starts a business and she says, she starts selling products and she starts to get really obsessed with that because she is desperate for some indication that she's a good person. And so she starts to pressure everyone around her to buy her products. And she, because of the desperation and because of the entitlement and, uh, but it ruins her friendships, of course, and it causes people to run away from her, which perpetuates the neglect that she originally experienced growing up. So you're asking, and I don't know, you know if that's an accurate conceptualization of her, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. So what do you do about that? Well, it's hard to know, but I've worked with people in this situation before, and one of the ways you do it is you go to her and you have a sit down and you'd be like, hey, I, I really value you as a friend, and I absolutely want to support your business and I, you know, your book and all that kind of stuff. But one, I can't afford it because I'm not that rich. And two, I feel like you only see me as a customer rather than a friend. And I, I want to be a friend. So if you want me as a friend and I want you as a friend, I, I kind of need you to stop pressuring me to buy stuff. Um, now, you also say, Lucy, that you don't like confrontations. You're not good at that. So... It's going to take a tremendous amount of differentiation to get through that conversation, right? Maybe you write it out or something. Because the alternative is you're never friends with her for the rest of your life. And, of course, that's an option. But if you want her as a friend, this might be the only way forward. And Lucy, being a human being, probably wants your friendship much more than she wants you as a customer. And probably gets kind of locked into certain ways of thinking. And you might be the one person in her life who actually honestly tells her this. Maybe she needs to be told, you know? So it's up to you, but that would be one approach. All right, this next email is from listener Siren from Europe. She writes in a longer email, but I'll just summarize. She's basically asking about my videos on Britney Spears, and and she says, Maybe Britney Spears used a lot of crystal meth, and this might cause the problems with her memory, the problems with paranoia, and the problems with movement. She says, when dancing, now Britney Spears always seems stiff and clumsy in a way. Could could a heavy brain damage cause these symptoms and so-called paranoid episodes that you shortly mentioned as an example of one of your clients? End of email. Yeah, absolutely. Um, long-term or even you know, mildly short-term or intense short-term uh, meth use can cause all sorts of problems, paranoia being one of the most common ones. I, I worked with a couple, actually, who suffered from meth addiction. I didn't know it when I was treating them, and this is why I was going to their home, and it was early in my career, and it was one of the first times that I had really experienced the delusion and the paranoia. You know, people think, oh, when, you, when I smoke pot, I get paranoid. Uh, with meth, you become schizophrenic. You become uh, similar to that of someone who's suffering from schizoaffective or, you know, delusional mania or something, such that they're hiding in the woods thinking that a monster is out to get them, that kind of thing. And they literally hallucinate monsters. And, and it's one of the really horrific long-term effects of meth it's usually the when people don't have the meth that they go into that but not always and yeah absolutely it, it, it you know in a 
in a way, it fries the brain, meth. A lot of drugs do, but meth uh, being one of them. You know, there's a lot of physiology there. I'm not a physiologist. I'm not a biologist, but it can cause brain damage, which can cause motor problems, cause uh, mood problems, be, uh, personality differences, um, all sorts of things can, uh, you know, you're, again, in a nutshell, uh, ongoing meth use can harm the brain in the same way that a stroke can or uh, chronic b- brain injury, um, this sort of thing. So, or you have a tumor and you have surgery and you have to take out part of the brain. Uh, meth has similar potential effects. So could Britney Spears be, could her behavior and her personality and her you know, memory problems be an effect of that? You know, sure. But, you know, we don't know. There's, uh, there's so much speculation on Britney Spears that uh, I'm just not going to uh, speculate until I get, you know, hard data. I am curious as to what's going to happen, though, now that the conservatorship is over. Presumably, she has a lot more freedom now. And if there was a problem with her that necessitated the conservatorship, then presumably will, you know, it'll come to light. Maybe not, but it, it, it might come to light. Like, oh, I see, I see why she needed the conservatorship. But really, the, the speculations are all over the board. Is it bipolar? Is it meth problems? Is it some rare sort of dementia? Because that's what we saw that was in the court records, I believe, was dementia. Was it something else? You know, that the speculations are abound. And because the conservatorship people, I think, didn't want to reveal what they thought was wrong with her because they wanted the image of Britney Spears to be upheld. Britney Spears... I think, I don't know, also doesn't want to talk about why the conservatorship was in place or perhaps what she suffers from, if anything, because she also wants to uphold a certain level of privacy and also, um, you know, an image, which is fine. You know, she's entitled absolutely to her medical privacy. All right, next email is from listener Carolina from Europe. She says, is it possible to live completely free from fear? even in life-threatening situations. My father and I were discussing if there is such a thing as a fear gene. He thinks he is lacking this fear gene because he recently got into a life-threatening medical situation and had to undergo heavy surgery. It all went very well, for which I'm truly grateful. He had some time to think while in the hospital and shared with me that he reflected on his life and realized that even in his worst moments, he has never felt fear and was able to stay calm. His personality in general is a very mature is a very mature nature. Do you have any thoughts on this? End of email. Uh, yeah. So if someone reported to me that they generally don't feel fear when they think other people would, and they've never really been that way, and their life was going fairly well, and their personality was going fairly well, then I would think, yeah, it's possible that they were born with you know, for lack of a better phrase, a smaller amygdala or not as a connected amygdala, amygdala to the rest of their body or whatever, you know, it's very, we, I don't understand that as a, as we, as a scientific community barely understand the brain. And I particularly don't understand the brain. I know enough about the brain to, to know that I really don't, I really don't know anything about it. I know that the amygdala has something to do with fear anyway. So 
might someone be born with an underdeveloped fear center or response or system in their brain? Sure. In the same way that someone might be born with a overactive or above average responsive fear response system. It makes total sense. Some people are more impulsive. Some people are less. Some people are more sensitive physically. Some people aren't. Some people are more taller. You know, there's various variances that humans exhibit and the fear response might be something that is affected by genetics, seems likely. In fact, there might even be research demonstrating that. In fact, for some, they model their model of psychopathy and antisocial is that it's based on a lack of fear response because empathy and learning your limits, learning how not to harm other people is somewhat, if, if not entirely, dependent on your ability to feel fear. You know, when you harm other people as a two-year-old, and the other person responds in a very abrupt way, you are afraid of what just happened. And then you learn, oh, I shouldn't do that because it'll produce behavior in other people that will make me afraid. So empathy and learning how not to harm other people might be at least partially, if not heavily dependent on your innate fear response that you're born with. But of course, not everyone that has that um, difference would develop psychopathy in all likelihood. But anyway, so, but if I heard that someone said that they don't have a lot of fear, but my dog is <laughs> shaking. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. My dog like is rolling around on the ground. Um, that if someone said that they lacked fear, but their life wasn't going very well and their relationships weren't, weren't fantastic, then I would wonder if they were suppressing their fear or they were, especially if they were a man, if they were um, afraid of their fear and always um, channeling it into other directions or going to denial of it. We have a lot of societal messages telling people, particularly men, that they cannot be afraid and that they're weak if they're afraid. So, but you say that, you know, he's he's very mature and um, you, you seem to believe that He's not suppressing his anger. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's possible for sure. All right, this next email is from anonymous listener. She says, can you discuss mother-daughter sexual abuse for an episode? It is an under-discussed and under-reported subject. I myself was abused by my mother sexually. I am in therapy, by the way. I've only found four videos on YouTube actually about it, and I had to get a book for clinicians just to read about it. I know I can't be the only one, and I think the shame of it is keeping others silent and discussing it could be really helpful for those thinking they are alone. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. And you're describing it pretty well that it's rarely talked about. Uh, the, you know, and the fact that there's only four YouTube videos about it should really tell you something about our society. <laughs> I mean, uh, the amount of people who have been sexually abused is you know, huge and a, you know, a percentage of them, I don't know the exact percentage, maybe 10, 20% were victimized by uh, women, uh, including Umberto. My co-host talks about his babysitter who was, he was five and she was 12 and she repeatedly and uh, sexually abused him and groomed him for a long time. And he has a lot of, and has a lot of negative effects, but through a lot of therapy for it. And uh, yeah, um, one, of course it happens. Two, we should be talking about it more. I mean, I remember going to trainings in, in graduate school, particularly back in the day, where 
to for the sake of convenience uh, sexual abusers would just be referred to as men and victims would just be referred to as women they would say things like well you know we know that women will abuse people as well but for the sake of ease let's just refer to the abuser as he and the victim as she so when he is when he grooms her and i remember you know early in my career just thinking like i don't know if that's I don't know if that's okay. Is that is that okay? And of course, I, I don't see that so much anymore. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's, at the very least, a reflex that people will have. And sometimes I get I do that. Sometimes I'll be you know I'll, I'll bring up a fictional situation of you know so when the abuser abuses the victim, the abuser he and I, and I'll just fall into that because I've internalized that gendered model or assumption about uh, abusers versus victims. Now, we have to acknowledge that uh, a higher percentage of abusers are men and a higher, um, I don't know, I think a higher, yeah, yeah, a higher percentage of victims are are girls and women. But that, what, you know, who cares? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like saying a higher percentage of poor people are white or something because there's just more white people in the United States. And so we should only refer to poor people as white people and just whatever we think of a poor person, we just think, Oh, white person. It's like, no, you know, all people of all ethnicities can be poor, of course. Anyway. So, um, we should be talking about it more. We should be raising awareness. And the fact that people, I don't know. And, and, and then we have all these ideas about it. Like, because of our ignorance, it's sort of like if we were around the clock 50 years there, and it might sound strange, but when I was growing up, it was kind of unheard of and hard for people to comprehend that anyone would sexually, sexually abuse anyone, particularly parents. They would, you know, whenever there was like a father accused of sexual abuse, people, when I was, I remember when I was really young, there was this tendency to be like, well, there must be a mistake there. You know, there must have been some kind of misunderstanding. Whereas, of course, now we totally understand that men, fathers, can absolutely uh, are capable of horrifically sexually abusing their, their own children. Well, I feel like we're still kind of in that camp when it comes to mothers, that people, if they heard about a case, an accusation, they'd say, well, you know, it must have been, must have been at the very least it must have been kind of minor sexual abuse or something like that and i'm like no you don't understand <laughs> like psychopathy sadism sexual sexually acting out knows no gender it is a human quality that is not you know unique to men uh it's it's unique to humans well it's it's a it's a property of human of you know hum, human personality and behavioral variability but anyway so we all need to get into our heads that mothers can and do and currently are sexually abusing their children. It's a small percentage. It's a smaller percentage than it is for men, for for fathers, but it's still a thing that happens to millions of people around the planet. And we have to really get that into our head. And we have to understand in a similar way that boys and men can be raped. It's another thing that we have a really hard time wrapping our mind around. It's like how do you how do you rape a twenty five year old man who is tall and stronger than the perpetrator? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, or how can a sixteen year old boy be raped by his hot 
woman teacher like all six is all 16 year old boys that's all they want to do is have sex and they would love to have sex with all their teachers and i find that these assumptions to be incredibly gross and disgusting to say that a 16 year old boy i I mean yeah just don't i don't need to tell everyone why those statements are ridiculous um now can a 16 year old person of any gender not be permanently scarred by having sex with their teacher it's it's slightly possible it's not likely but you know this notion that uh it's black and white when it comes to these situations is is also a problem that that people have anyway but yeah you're saying anonymous listener that you were sexually abused by your mother and there's only four videos on youtube i mean there are i'm guessing billions of youtube videos and millions upon millions of videos about about psychology and hundreds of thousands of videos about sexual abuse and there's you could only find four youtube videos about you know mothers who sexually abuse their children now the other thing is is youtube kind of polices its content sometimes as a pr- content provider i can tell you my goodness i mean just side note the amount of trouble i have to go through to fight with youtube on a episode Pretty much every episode I post, I have to either in a minor way or in a major way fight with YouTube about this content is okay. You might, because, you know, I'll talk, for example, in this episode, I talked about rape. Well, a computer will hear that word and just flag me in all sorts of ways. And then I have to say, no, YouTube, I'm not like promoting rape. I'm not, I'm not talking in a denigrating way about victims of rape. I am advocating for awareness of it. (laughs) Now my dog is whining. Um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm on the good side of things. You know, YouTube, I assume you want people advocating for victims. I assume you want people advocating for awareness about these sorts of things, but it's so hard. Anyway, so it's possible that, some people are posting videos of mother perpetrators of sexual abuse, but because of the guidelines on YouTube, it's it's really hard to get those videos published or or discoverable during search um, queries. So I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be surprised that if there's a, a very small amount of uh, awareness and content regarding that. So uh, and and yeah, when you go out there and you're like, uh, you know, I need to find information on this and you find no information on it. It just feels like, Oh, I must be the only one or there must be something wrong with me or, you know, and it just adds to the shaming, which, you know, of course doesn't help. All right, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. I thought I'd do an OPP an old patron praise. These people became patrons all the way back in July of 2019 and have stayed patrons ever since we got Steve from, London, Great Britain. We got Wendy from Flushing, New York, who is an upper tier patron, Wendy. We have Ahmad from Everett, Washington, just north of here, where I was an ice cream man when I was in a younger person. We got Holly from Georgia. We have Bryce from Berwick, Australia. We got Wendy from Nashville, Tennessee. We got upper tier patron Dana or Dana from Birmingham, Alabama. We got Russell in purple, who is someone that I would see on YouTube often. Good old Russell in purple from CZ. Is that Czechoslovakia? Chechnya. Chechnya. And we also have 
Lordy Claire from God Elsewhere. We have I Have the Knack from Burnsville, Minnesota. We have Karina from Tumwater, Washington. Good old, good old Tumwater. And Ethan and Clark from God Knows Where. Thank you all for becoming patrons and staying patrons all of this time. All right, this next email is from listener Sierra from Florida. She says, how do I get my voice in my head out of my mouth and not be more worried about the other person instead of myself? I've been with my high school love, and we have a daughter together. I am with my high school love, and we've, we have a daughter together. He is one of my best friends, but I noticed after being pregnant that I was always the one to initiate sex. So I stopped to see if he would want to touch me like I do him, but he never did touch me. He's in love with me, but he says he goes on a downward spiral sometimes because we have broken up once. I'm tired of fighting for the attention that I so easily give to him. I want someone who has passion for me, but I'm worried about disrupting my home life or my daughter being mad at me for leaving him for such tiny reasons. End of email. So I don't know, listener Sierra from Florida, but it sounds to me like he has an avoidant attachment style and you're either secure or preoccupied. I can't really tell. But uh, from what you're saying is that you have broken up once and that was really hurtful to him and that he says he goes on a downward spiral. I'm guessing what happens is that when there's vulnerability, he will downward spiral or when he's hurt, you know, when you're in a relationship, you get minorly hurt every now and then. And his default stance is to not reach out. And uh, the thing to understand about avoidantly attached individuals, people with avoidant attachment style, is that they're not usually actively withholding their love or attention or emotions. It just, it gets suppressed automatically for them. Um, When they were two years old, neurologically, they just learned to do that automatically. And by the time they're an adult, they don't even, they don't even notice that it's happening. And so it actually takes a tremendous amount of effort for them to notice their emotions and sometimes takes years and years of therapy to notice. And so in order to have passion for you, in order to reach out to you, he has to recognize, you know, the reason why you reach out to him is because you have an upwelling of attachment need and love for him. Well, in order to, you know, reach out to someone in a passionate way, you have to be in touch with your feelings of love for someone. You might He might have tremendous love for you, but if he's not in touch with those feelings, they don't naturally come up for him and thus don't motivate any kind of behavior. The other thing is, is that it sounds like he's still hurt and scared and doesn't trust you, but because he's not in touch with his feelings, he doesn't communicate about it and doesn't recognize it and doesn't go to therapy. So obviously therapy for him and you is the answer to this. All right, the next email is from listener Camille from Wisconsin. She says, what's your opinion on relationship life coaches? I'm watching a show on VH1 called Couples Retreat, which is led by a relationship life coach who is a former actress. It would be interesting to hear your reaction. Um, Yeah, so life coaches are fine as long as everyone understands that they have potentially no education, no qualification, and no competence. Anyone, literally anyone, a five-year-old could open a business and call themselves a life coach. Now, some life coaches have tremendous competence and tremendous education and tremendous capabilities and tremendous ethical codes that they follow, that, that they choose to follow. But to be a life coach means nothing. So it's just a matter, which is fine, you know, in the same way that, um, there's a plane going overhead right now, in the same way that 
you know, I could call myself like someone who has a direct line of communication with the great spaghetti monster in the sky. You know, I, I can call myself anything I want to, but as long as everyone understands that uh, I probably actually don't have a direct <laughs> connection um, or maybe a, a better way to put it is, you know, someone who says they're an interior designer, maybe that's a good example. Someone says, you know, I'm an interior designer or I'm a, I'm a wardrobe, I'm a fashion coach or something. I think most people would immediately say, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you don't have to get a master's degree to call yourself that. So like if you heard of an interior designer who was terrible at their job, at least for me, I would be like, well, you know, uh, it, it's also kind of opinion based, right? Interior design and life coaching is the same way. As far as I can tell, have you said that I have worked, I have a colleague who's a life coach, uh, and I, we would share clients. He would, he often client, he, I don't know how he did this, but he had a very, uh, he had a very good marketing scheme or a good word of mouth or something. And he would get a lot of people coming to him and he would refer a lot of his clients to me when they needed clinical help. And so there's a point in my career when I'll, a fair, I don't know, maybe 10, 20% of my clients were referred by this one life coach. And so we would work together and I found that he gave good advice and knew where the line was. You know, he knew like, Oh, we're, we're heading into clinical stuff. I think, these people should go to a therapist. So, you know, what's my opinion of relationship life coaches is <laughs> my dog. I don't know if you can hear my dog like moaning and whining and stuff. Um, I don't know what he wants. What do you want, buddy? Um, so uh, my opinion is it's fine as long as they don't advertise themselves in ways that are misleading and as long as the public is educated that there's a huge difference between a life coach and a licensed professional. All right, this next email is from anonymous listener. She says, how, how do clinicians tell the difference between a person who has borderline personality disorder and someone who has complex PTSD plus ADHD? And how important would it be to you to distinguish between this the this combination and BPD when you're diagnosing a patient and of email. Yeah. So the interesting thing about being old is that I see things change in terms of their definition. Back in the day, complex PTSD, like 25 years ago, wasn't discussed very often. It's discussed much more, more recently. I think for a number of reasons. One is, is that it is helpful to have an understanding of the connection between PTSD and borderline. And it's also important to recognize that some people with PTSD aren't war veterans and are, they have the same, you know, diagnosis, but, but different because it was developed while they were young, as opposed to getting in a car crash when you're 35, that kind of thing. Anyway, so there's that. I also think that some people, because of the stigma around borderline that I will say has really only become a major issue in the last 10 or 20 years. When I first became a therapist, the lay public had never heard of borderline. And I, I could talk about borderline in, you know, among lay people, and they didn't have any associations with it. Clinicians did, and many clinicians had a negative stereotype of people with borderline, but lay people didn't. Today, and I don't think it's very prevalent, but, you know, it's a pretty good percentage of the lay public that has a stereotypical view of what borderline is. And 
so I think that the label of complex PTSD has been talked about more because some people who have borderline would rather call themselves someone suffering from complex PTSD than borderline because of the stigma, which I find to be silly. The other thing is, is you know, there's more research on borderline and complex PTSD and, and, and that sort of thing. So um, anyway, so what's the what's the difference? Well, for some clinic, it's all just so what do I just say? There's two things I'll say. One is, is that in some respects, complex PTSD and, and borderline are indistinguishable, especially when people just have like a, a way of describing, you know, a client or something. It's not incredibly important to differentiate between the two because the two essentially have the same genesis. Um, people with borderline have essentially a version of PTSD. And so in sort of common discussions, you'll hear people using borderline and complex PTSD interchangeably. Now you're saying, you know, the difference between borderline and CPS complex PTSD and plus ADHD. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I have much to say about that. I'm certainly ADHD can complicate things, but anyway, um, but in the research literature, you will see a distinction usually between borderline and complex PTSD. And listen, I actually did a whole episode on this that I think it might be called borderline versus complex PTSD. I'm not sure. But in the research literature, we do distinguish between the two. Essentially, the uh, what distinguishes borderline from complex PTSD is that borderline is more severe. Borderline has all the symptoms generally of complex PTSD plus other other distressing symptoms. Uh, one way to think about it is that people with complex PTSD uh, are, now my dog's shaking himself. Um, one way to think about it is people with complex PTSD often are aware of the fact that they have some kind of traumatic reactivity and they don't shame themselves for it tremendously. You know, they'll look at themselves and say, you know, it's it's sort of like someone who comes back from war or someone who got in a car accident later on, they have PTSD. They don't typically judge themselves. They certainly can, but there's some awareness of like, well, this isn't really my fault. Whereas people with borderline, it, the way that they see the world and the way that they see themselves is so distorted that it's hard for them to sift through what is fair about themselves and what's fair about others. Whereas people with complex PTSD, there's, there's a, a little bit greater chance of them being able to, you know, there's people with complex PTSD are suffering greatly. I'm not saying that they're suffering less. They certainly can suffer just as much, but the, the self-awareness and the insight might be a little higher with complex PTSD. And there's other distinctions too. Um, like, the connection with the self people with borderline are are by definition uh, lacking a connection with the self whereas someone with complex ptsd might have some connection with the self but again in common diagnosing and discussions i, I don't know if people necessarily draw those distinctions so it's kind of confusing if you're trying to um you know sift through that the other thing you ask is you know is it important to distinguish? And the answer is no, because when I'm treating someone with borderline, I'm absolutely treating them as someone who has complex PTSD, who has PTSD, who has been traumatized by someone that they should have been able to trust. And uh, in my head, I don't, I don't distinguish between the two. They still both, you know, they both need very similar things. They need a really strong attachment with me. 
They will both transfer onto me, various different things. They both need a lot of awareness and emotional regulation. They both need corrective experiences. They both need to become habituated to their trauma triggers. Now, you could say that people with borderline need an additional set of considerations, maybe greater you know, greater transference and countertransference, a greater need for connection with the self, possibly that sort of thing. But honestly, in my head, I, I don't, I, I don't, when I have someone that I have labeled as borderline, I don't blanketly treat them with the same thing that I always do. I, I tailor my treatment because everyone with borderline, everyone with a complex PTSD is different and they have a different set of symptoms that manifest differently. And so uh, I, I always tailor anyway. So I would, regardless of what label is rattling around in my head, it, it wouldn't, that's just a placeholder. That's just like the, that's just like the title of the book. You know, think, think of um, these labels like narcissistic personality disorder as the title of the book. And then the chapters are perhaps the symptoms. And, but in each chapter it are pages, you know, 50 pages of description that really distinguish one individual from another. Well, this next email from anonymous listener, she writes, do you have any recommendations for a role theory reference? End of question. So a reference for role theory. The answer is no, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm terrible about that and I should be better. Right, this next email is from listener Amanda from Germany. She says, how can one show affection without physical touch? My boyfriend and I use physical touch as the main way of showing affection. We love to cuddle, hold hands, etc. However, when the temperatures rise in the summer, he sometimes gets too hot to even shortly squeeze my hand. For me, this feels re really rejecting, even though I know that's not his intention. To solve this, I researched ways of showing affection without being physical. However, Google was not very helpful, and it's hard for me to think of other solutions, so I'm a bit lost on how to approach this. Do you have any suggestions on how to address this? End of email. Well, first of all, first of all, Amanda, you are very differentiated to be able to not take it personally. You're having empathy, you're mentalizing, and you're saying, well, even though he doesn't want to hold my hand, uh, he says it's because he's too hot, and so... It feels rejecting, but I know it's not really rejecting. So what's another way we can have affection between the two of us, which is you know very mature and very caring, very fair and very um, healthy to, to see it that way. So, um, but, you know, what are you supposed to do? Well, you know, there are various verbal ways. Um, he could literally say, I'm sorry, honey, I can't hold your hand right now because I'm so hot, but boy, do I love you. Can I just hold your hand? metaphorically right now <laughs> um you can show affection by giving gifts you can show affection by doing things for each other you can show affection through eye contact uh you know that kind of stuff so you know it's possible that you also have a preoccupied avoidant dynamic uh, slightly people who are avoidant sometimes get they feel a little trapped when you're holding their hand um, especially maybe if you know prompted by it being hot as well who knows but you might want to address that as well of just like hey you know i think generally speaking i'm feeling a little neglected so you know let's go to couples therapy and, and work on that sex emails from listener rosa from brazil she says could you talk about the reasons for having difficulty with expressing your needs end of email so let's see it also says here um i felt inspired to go to therapy thanks for that 
I used to be afraid because I had a bad experience in the past, and I've been working on my trauma ever since. Well, that's great, Rosa. Um, I'm guessing that you're having difficulty expressing your needs because you've been traumatized. And uh, the reasons why we have, there's so many reasons why you have difficulty expressing our needs, you know, oppression, sexism, racism, uh, early childhood trauma, being shamed, being made to feel like you're weak, not being able to trust others with your with your feelings, with your needs, not knowing your needs. I, I would suspect, Rosa, that, uh, uh, you know, given the little that you said, uh, that I would explore, do you even know your needs? And if you do, if you don't, then obviously getting in touch with that can take a long time in therapy, but that would be a that would be priority number one. If you do know your needs and you're having trouble expressing them, then the second most likely possibility is that you were told and shown early that no one cares or you'll be punished if you do express your needs. And so these internalized voices kick in to make you be quiet about your needs or to give you anxiety about expressing your needs. So that would be a thing to work on. All right, this next email is from listener Priscilla, also from Brazil. It says, do you believe that psychopaths can heal? I am a psychologist from Brazil. I was taught that it was impossible for psychopaths to heal, but honestly, I don't believe in that. I believe that sociopaths and psychopaths can have treatment and improve themselves, so I really want to know your position about it. End of email. Yeah, it's a complex topic, but the short answer is yes, of course. Uh, heal is a funny word, but and I've treated psychopaths before and you know seen improvements. But it so there's so many different angles to this. Um, one angle is that some psychopaths are so devious that when they find themselves in therapy, it's often forced on them. And because they're psychopathic, they can become very aggravating in therapy and maybe very good at manipulating the therapist and believing into believing that they're changing when they're really not. And so... There, if you work with a particular population, a criminal population, a prison population, for example, a good percentage of people in prison are psychopaths, that you can have this jaded point of view. And then as an expert, you know, if you work in a prison system, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone who works in the prison system to, or they assess p people in criminal cases, this kind of thing, to have a lot of contact with psychopaths who are pretty severe and to be manipulated over time by these individuals and then to develop a very jaded point of view about them. And then you're an expert on psychopaths and you write a book or you speak up about it and you say, no, psychopaths can't be treated. They're always manipulating you. Um, you know, take it from me as someone who treated people's, you know, psychopathy. Uh, if, if you think they're changing, they're, they're just tricking you, that kind of thing. So you'll hear that. And there's some truth to that. Um, at least their experiences are true. And, and some psychopaths are absolutely, um, it's difficult to treat them because it's difficult to get them to motivate. You know, But if you have a psychopath who is motivated in therapy, just like anyone, someone who isn't a psychopath, if, if they're not motivated in therapy, then they're not going to change, right? They're going to resist everything. They're, they're going to zone out. Um, there are ways of kind of tricking people into um, healing, so to speak, and I used to do a fair amount of that work when I worked with a lot of teenagers who didn't want to be in therapy. But, but generally speaking, anyone, for anyone of any disorder or not, they have to want to work. And the same is true with psychopaths. If you have a psychopath who doesn't want to work, uh, 
then yeah, you're, you're not going to do much with them. But if you have a psychopath who does want to work, at least somewhat, then there are things that can be accomplished in terms of outcomes. One is they can learn how to better manage their life. Psychopaths typically have extremely unmanageable lives. Drug addiction, criminal activity, horrible relationships, uh, violence, you know, conflict. And psychopaths have attachment needs. And that this is one thing that people just, I find, I don't understand why they don't understand this. I think it's because there's this uh, painting of the psychopath as this alien from outer space, like like they're... They, they, they lack all humanity. They lack an element of humanity, which is empathy towards others, but they don't lack all of humanity. They still have to go to the bathroom. They still have to eat. They still have to drink. They still like to have fun. They still like to be creative and they still want attachments. They still want relationships with other people. This is why psychopaths are often so destructive because in their efforts to gain attachments, they will abuse other people in the process. And because, because if, if psychopaths truly did not need attachments, then they would just wander off into the woods and because humans are inconvenient, <laughs> you know, if you don't care. Uh, and, and the other thing is, is there are, you know, uh, schizoid individuals who truly do not care about other humans. And the, these are very different from psychopaths. People who truly don't care, seemingly they were born uncaring schizoid people about other humans they don't harm other people they don't commit a bunch of crimes they don't become abusive to others they just don't they just don't socialize they just find a job that they can do from home or isolate in an office somewhere and they just avoid people and and when you interact with them they they're they might be polite but they're they're really just not interested in talking to you in the same way that you know if you're not interested in a particular sport and someone wants to talk with you about that sport, you're just like, yeah, I'm just not. It's the same way. They're that, they're that way about humans. And I'll do a whole deep dive on them at some point. But um, psychopaths aren't necessarily like that. Now, some psychopaths are. Some psychopaths are schizoid in addition. But generally speaking, psychopaths want attachment. So um, you can use that, right? So they'll come to you have a, with a lifetime of a train wreck. And... If you can convince them that you can help them actually get their attachment needs met in a way that is actually functional, then you might be able to get them to be motivated to work in therapy. And once you get to that point, which I have done before, then, um, and, you know, just backing up a little bit, I will also say that for some psychopaths, they seem, you know, non-schizoid psychopaths, they seem like maybe they don't have attachment needs, but it's hard to know. Like even someone like Ted Bundy, who was like, you know, one of the most extreme psychopaths that ever lived on the planet. In my opinion, based on the psychohistory that I've done on him, which I've, you know, by the listener's motivation, done a lot about him. I think his primary injury was when he fell in love with this woman in college here in Seattle. And, and she ended up breaking up with him, I think. And he went into like, six to 12 months of total, utter disorganized attachment despair. And he talks about this in, in his long form interviews. But anyway, so, you know, like someone like Charlie Manson, who was also a sadistic psychopath, why did he surround himself with so many people? You know, you said, well, it's a narcissism. Well, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. But I also think he also wanted a connection and it's a very distorted, disturbing 
effort for connection. I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't want sympathy for Ted Bundy or Charlie Manson. I want us to understand them. So, so along those lines, when I've treated psychopaths and I've got them to a point where, and part of the ability to motivate them is to identify with the humanity that they have, which is attachments sometimes, not always, but, and so once I get them to that point, then I'm like, okay, so the road, but they've had a lifetime of being a psychopath and a lifetime of bad experiences with people and experiences where they don't really understand what's happening. And so I would work with them on how are we going to get you your needs met because you have needs without your problem getting in the way. And so eventually what we get to, if I can motivate them and if they you know, choose, because not every psychopath will do that, is I get them to a point where I have them manufacture empathy for other people because they're probably never going to naturally feel it. And so they have to manufacture it in the same way that, you know, if you're right-handed and you, you, you have to force yourself to write with your left hand, it's a similar thing. It's, and it's not, it never is genuine and it's never easy for them, but they, or like speaking another language, you know, you, you really want to speak in your native language, but you, you force yourself to speak in this other language. And, for the psychopath that lacks empathy, it's functional for them to get their needs met if they can, if they can not necessarily fake empathy, but um, imagine empathy. It, so one of the things that I've done with them is that I get them to learn how other people operate. So we'll, you know, provide a, or maybe I'll just do it between me and them. Uh, the psychopath will be in my office and I'll be like, okay. So you showed up 10 minutes late. How do you think I feel about that? And so we would do in vivo like that. And I'd, well, and so uh, they might say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that um, you're super, super pissed at me or, you know, something. I'll be like, well, no, not really. Um, I, I'm a little annoyed, but I also care about you. And, you know, so I'd go into detail about that. And then I'd ask the psychopath to okay what do you what did you hear that i just said or there might be little micro moments where you know i'll say something and then the psychopath will interrupt me or something and i'll be like well okay so you just interrupted me how, how do you think that makes me feel when you interrupt me that way and we just repeat that over and over again because they have to manufacture something that most people just innately learn you know and have the capacity to learn when they're young and by rinsing and repeating that, they eventually learn how to intellectually empathize, how to intellectually understand the feelings that are going on in other people. And when they can do that, then they can much better manage their lives. They can much better manage relationships or work situations or, you know, trouble in public. Um, you know, a psychopath is walking down the sidewalk and someone gets in their way. The psychopath wants to push that person down um, and sometimes they will but if they can really drill it into their head oh if i push that person down it's going to really scare them and hurt their feelings and uh, in my heart i don't care but it'll ruin my life because if i push that person down it's going to create a feeling in them that'll call, cause them to call the cops or maybe call my boss and i'll get fired or i'll go to prison or something and so it's not good for me to push this person down now, if you're a sadist, then it's a whole other ball of wax. Because if you're a sadist, in addition to being a psychopath, 
then you actually take tremendous pleasure from pushing people down and harming others, which is a whole other thing. Now, those people are also not untreatable, but again, they have to be motivated. They have to say, I want, even though I have this urge to hurt other people sexually or physically or monetarily or emotionally, I, I, I don't, my life is unmanageable. I don't want to do this anymore. Can you please help me with that? Um, it'd be a similar thing for a pedophile, right? Someone who wants to have sex with a child, they can be treated to not have sex with children um, if they, you know, or even without treatment. Sometimes they can manage it. Um, with treatment, it's easier for them, right? And support, it's easier for them. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Psychopaths, um, sadists, so-called sociopaths um, can respond well to treatment, but they have to want it. That's the whole kicker and that's that's hard to find particularly if the individual has been down a long road of difficulty and has developed a fair amount of um, you know distrust of authority or doctors or you know that sort of thing but um, the other thing to think about is that there are degrees of psychopathy you know it's not an either or thing there are people who are say 50 percent on the spectrum, meaning that they have some empathy. It's extremely minimal, but they have some empathy that can be engaged and expanded. Having said all that, working with psychopaths, uh, especially if that was a thing you did frequently, is hard. Uh, it's rough. It's not, it's, you know, I find that when people have a dream about becoming a therapist, trainees of mine, they have this vision of working with clients who really want to work with you and work hard in therapy. And you know, working with psychopaths and others who might not want to be in therapy, it's hard. It takes a toll. You can get burnt out pretty fast. So I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying uh, I had tremendously awesome outcomes with them. I'm just saying that to say that they can't be treated and they're doomed is doesn't really, it's not really shown in the research. The other thing to think about is what our hopes are regarding outcomes. You know, a lot of times when we're concerning ourselves with psych psychopaths, we're concerned with reoffending. And can a psychopath be treated in a way that will reduce the likelihood of reoffending? Yes, there are tons of studies and treatment protocols demonstrating that when you provide this treatment uh, protocol to a group of psychopaths and compare them to a control group of psychopaths that didn't get that treatment, that you'll see a reduction in, in reoffending. Is that, does that mean they, you know, you can successfully quote unquote cure some individual, some individuals with psych psychopathy? Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, again, it just depends on the outcomes. The other thing is that I'll say is that, uh, and this relates to other things I've said about other topics, similar topics is that I find that people who don't really understand psychopathy that well, even some professors for that matter. It's so how do I put this? So I think some people and I'll include myself in this at times that when psychology is such a complex topic and there's so many different topics to learn. And let's say you're a professor and you're teaching, you know, ethics or something. And you're frequently being required to know things as a professor. And then uh, someone asks you, can a psychopath be cured? Well, to truly answer that question and to truly know the answer to that question, you would have to study psychopathy for months and months and months. And that's just one topic that you get asked about. Well, it, as a shortcut to that work, you can just have an opinion that 
is simplistic and eliminates the need to go further. And there are certain opinions among professors and supervisors and clinicians that I find to be a convenient way of avoiding learning more, such as psychopaths can't be cured or borderline people should be avoided or narcissistic personality disorder people can't be helped in therapy. You know, there are certain things that people will just say or, you know, medications are bad for clients. Ritalin is bad or something. You know, there's certain things there's I'll hear certain things from people. I'll be like, that's such a simplistic thing and also not true. Why would you say that? You know, and and I I must have at some point in my career also had, a, you know, something along those lines and then later on learned, oh, this is much more nuanced. It's similar thing as Freud is an idiot is another thing you'll hear some professors say. And I think I think definitely one of the reasons why you'll hear professors say that is because it's so daunting to have to learn Freud. It, it Take it from me, who has spent years learning Freud, I still feel like I don't understand him at times. Um, it's such a different language that they spoke back, even, you know, obviously he spoke non-English, but the system of psychology talk that they, him and all of his followers had was, it's so foreign and it's based on all these other assumptions and, and it's so kind of jumbled that it's just hard to sort of grasp who Freud was and what he was trying to say. There are summaries and some of them are good, but particularly when you start going down rabbit holes of object relations and the neo-Freudians and the self-psychologist people, like it gets, it gets really complicated and it's so much easier just to say Freud was an idiot and move on with your life. This next email is from listener L from California. She says, can you talk about the Hikikomori phenomenon in Japan? Would also like to hear your opinion about the Hikikomori presentation in the United States. I don't believe it's isolated to Japan. Since you're half Japanese, I think your viewpoint on Hikikomori would might be interesting. And if you know. Yeah, so there's a lot to say about this, but in brief, apparently in Japan that we have they have this word, the Hikikomori, uh, is often it's a young man or a teenage boy who isolates their uh, either their parents, you know, in their bedroom in their parents' house or at a small apartment in the city, and they never leave. They never, they don't work, they don't socialize, they play video games all day. And it, I think it, it started showing up in the 80s in Japan, and it was such a, a strange foreign thing uh, for us in the United States in the 80s. Of course, there were people in the States who also were living that kind of lifestyle, but Lately, in the United States, we're, we're starting to see that happen more and more and more. Loneliness, you know, it's uh, the Internet providing a lot of one's supposed needs. Um, these, you know, difficulty getting employment, hard to buy your own house, uh, fear of STIs. You know, there's just a, a lot of factors that play into uh, more and more people of any gender living lifestyles where they isolate in their rooms all day. And uh, there's a lot of things to say. One is, you know, the aforementioned schizoid is someone who just doesn't really care about others. And so for those individuals, it's fine that they, you know, and I'll probably get into this in the, well, I know I'll get into this in a deep dive, but one way of looking at people who just do not care about other humans is just live and let live, let them isolate themselves and they'll be fine. Just don't, don't pressure them, that kind of thing. 
Now, that's probably a small percentage. I think a much larger percentage of people who are living this kind of lifestyle where they're holed up in their apartment and they never leave are socially anxious or avoidant personality disordered. And, you know, listen to all my deep dives on that. So for those individuals, they're, you know, terrified, just utterly, utterly terrified and either have distorted views about what's happening or or not, you know, when they do leave the house. Um, there's a lot of people who are traumatized. And I have a theory as to why Japan might have seen this happen uh, in higher prevalence rates uh, earlier on is because Japan can be extremely shaming to its people, uh, to children and to teenagers, can be extremely like, what's wrong with you? You're, you're not doing things right. And uh, if you don't conform to a certain lifestyle, and things are different, you know, and Japan has millions upon millions of people and there's various different regions, but the sort of mainstream culture, particularly in the past, was really geared towards success and school and business at the expense of all things else, especially for men. And there's all this, in an effort to kind of really push that agenda, there's a lot of shaming and neglect to men and boys. And so you end up having this idea that you can't win. You know, you're you're a fuck up and no one loves you and you'll you'll never get any respect. And so you push people that far, you'll eventually find a group of people that just give up. There's like, I'm just going to, I'd rather choose the freedom of not giving into all that ridiculousness, but I can't leave the house because I'll be constantly shamed. So I'll just stay in my room all day long and no one will want to hang out with me because I'm such a ridiculous failure. And then all these defenses kick in, blah, blah, blah. And of course, this isn't relegated to Japan. This is, you know, in the United States as well. And the way we uh, we need to help these people. Again, there's some people who just would rather not leave their apartment and that's okay. But there are a lot of people who would rather leave. But because they have traumas and aren't being treated, they aren't leaving. Now, it gets really complicated because how do you get these people treatment? Because they don't want to leave the house. And some of them don't even think there's anything wrong with them. Meaning they, they don't, they're in denial because of how fragile their ego is. So it's really hard. You know, there are certain disorders that will uh, show up in your therapy office, you know, borderline, for example, preoccupied attachment. These individuals seek therapy out frequently because they are really preoccupied with, relationships and they're highly emotional and they often will have a dependent streak, meaning that they believe that other people have answers uh, to their problems. And whereas if you're avoidant or you're socially anxious or you're avoidant, you know, avoidant attachment or avoidant personality disorder, which are completely different things, but the same name, um, then you're extremely unlikely to go to therapy or uh, go to therapy if someone suggests it. So, you know, it gets really hard to, to deal with if you have a family member or a friend or yourself is like that. This next email from anonymous listener, she says, should I tell my mother that the mirrors around the house trigger me? My mother was bulimic and suffers from borderline personality disorder. She finds decorating relaxing. However, she puts mirrors on every other wall. I'm bulimic as well. And her comments about my weight and puffy cheeks from purging have increased my purging behaviors. I hate mirrors because I hate my reflection should I tell her how they make me feel? I'm worried how she will react. End of email. Well, yeah, you ab absolutely 
can and probably should address the beer thing, but really it's a larger topic. You and your mother need specialized treatment for eating disorders and bulimia and potentially borderline. And without that, uh, there's not, you know, getting rid of them. So if I don't know if you're in treatment or not, you didn't indicate one way or the other, but it sounds like maybe you're not. Because if you were in treatment, um, there would be opportunities to talk about it with your mom. But if you're not in treatment and let's say you, somehow you come up with this magical way of bringing it up to your mom is being like, Hey, can we get rid of the mirrors? They trigger me. And she complies, which sounds like it might not happen, but let's say it does. Well, that probably doesn't solve your problems. It, it, it gets rid of one of the hundreds of triggers that you have. And maybe it's a significant one, but it's not going to solve your problem or your mom's problem or the dynamic between the two of you. And so, you know, the best thing I can tell you is, you know, ongoing treatment and eating disorder treatment is important and complex and often involves a lot of professionals. And I know that sometimes it's hard to sign up for that. There are day treatment programs you can go to, but you deserve that treatment and your mom does too. All right. This next email is from someone who wants to be called anonymous patron but they're not a patron. And this happens occasionally, and I just want everyone to be okay with saying they're not a patron. So in the you know, when you go to the website and you fill out our form, it I ask people, how would you like me to refer to you? And some people, even though they're not patrons, will say, I want you to refer to me as anonymous patron. And I'm not sure why they're saying that, uh, if they're trying to lie or they just think anonymous patron means anonymous person or something. But, you know, you could say anonymous listener. I, I, I might not ever get to your email, but I think I'm going to get to all everyone's email today. Like, this, it's New Year's Eve. I, I'm dedicated. I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm about 40% through this <laughs> document. But um, if, you, if you're not a patron... I'm still dedicated to getting to your email. I might not. De- I might not get to it until the end of the year. <laughs> um, of course, becoming a patron helps. You know, push your email up higher. And I don't do that to punish non-patrons. I do that because I literally just don't have time to, and I have to have some way of differentiating. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm doing. You know. So, but anyway, uh, don't refer to yourself as a patron unless you are, which is fine. You know, you're just like, hey, I, I can't afford it or whatever. But anyway, so anonymous listener who wanted to be called an anonymous patron <laughs> says, I'm currently single and recently got back in touch with a man I previously dated casually. This man has everything going for him. He's kind, compassionate, charitable, loves animals as much as I do, very intelligent, measured, successful, and financially and emotionally secure. But I always, fe- I always felt that he was too good for me. I am still working through my own attachment-based traumas and issues. I tend to feel more comfortable with men who have their own deep struggles because I can relate and that helps me form trust and deep bonds as I know that they understand pain and deep emotional suffering too. Another part of me thinks maybe I'm just self-sabotaging myself from having a healthy, mature, loving relationship because I'm more comfortable in a struggle. My friends think I'm insane for brushing him off again, but I just don't feel good enough for a guy like him. Can you discuss the idea of he's not he's too good for me from a psychological point of view? End of email. Yeah, so there's a lot of angles to this. On one level, it's absolutely fine if you want to date people who can relate to you emotionally. 
who might come from a similar background of traumas or something. That's totally fine. And that, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you also want to look. So everything you're saying here, I would just continue to explore. But uh, and I think, you know, everything I'm about to say, because you're basically saying it in this email, is that the idea that he's too good for you is ridiculous. Um, but no one's better than anyone else. <laughs> so and you don't know that he doesn't have traumas, you know, just uh, just because he's kind, compassionate, intelligent, and measured, and successful doesn't mean he doesn't have deep problems. Most people do have deep problems, <laughs> so there's that. Um, and this idea that I'm guessing you were told growing up that you're not good enough for other people. Obviously, that's not true, and you deserve to be. You know, you deserve healing from that. Um, and it's also true that some people sabotage themselves by dating people that they subconsciously know will result in a train wreck because they're trying to recreate the past. So, you know, you're saying all the right things. You're aware of all the right things. I think if you go to therapy and you heal from those traumas, you're much less likely to be distorted because on one level, so let's say that you go through a ton of therapy and you heal from a lot of your past traumas and then you meet this guy again. It could go one of two ways, but you don't know until you go through that healing. It could go one way where you're like, oh, he's not actually too good for me. In fact, he's perfect for me. And you fall in love with him and you date him. Um, or it could go another way where you're healed and you have contact with him and you're just like, no, actually, we just don't have chemistry. It's not that he's too good for me. It's just that I, I kind of want someone with a little edge or something. Or you hang out with him and you're like, uh, hmm, I think I just want another kind of thing. So... You can't, you don't know until you heal. And that's one of the big reasons why I say go to therapy is that if you heal from your past attachment wounds, dating becomes so much easier and more functional because it, if you are still operating from repetition compulsion and, you know, projective identification and repeating your past relationships in the present, you can't know if you're falling in love for legitimate reasons or reasons of repetition, you know, you, and so, uh, yeah, go to therapy. Sext emails from listener Karen from Raleigh. She says, what are the elements of a proper thank you? End of question. Yeah, so I've gone over elements of apology, and then there was um, someone asked me to talk about the elements of a what was it like a request for an apology but anyway elements of a proper thank you i don't know i don't know the research on that but off the top of my head i would say the principle to follow is sincerity and how to download your sincerity in this into so, depending on how much you want to if if someone just gives you like you go to the restaurant and they take your plates away and you say thank you you don't have to get down on your knees and say oh my god you're the best person ever so it kind of depends on the context but if you're talking about thinking someone and you like a friend or a family member or a partner and you really want them to understand that you're thankful um, or you want probably it's more likely Karen you want someone to thank you and you're just like I'm not I feel like I'm not getting enough of a thank you from these people I, you know I spent a lot of time doing x y and z and they said thanks but you know that 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 doesn't suffice. And so uh, maybe that's what you're asking. But anyway, the it's all about the same with apology. You know, we don't follow the, the components of an apology just for the sake of following the components. The components help us understand 
what to concentrate on in ourselves and what to communicate to other people. So when you are thankful, you want to really focus on like, what am I thankful for truly? And how thankful am I? And how much effort did this person put into this? You know, what, how big of a deal is this? And when you really internalize that, then a thank you will come out of you in a way that is commensurate to the action. All right, this next email is from listener Sindhu from India. She says, how does novelty itself foster hatred towards concepts and groups of people? I've seen you explain how ideas of homophobia and racism occur with people reacting negatively towards concepts which are new to them. Taking an interest in colonial studies, I have been studying how natives of regions are mostly welcoming of European travelers throughout history despite their polarizing differences. This is not an accusatory question. I just genuinely am curious to understand how difference and novelty in and of itself can foster hatred towards the concepts and groups of people and under what conditions it manifests. End of email. Yeah, boy, I mean, if that's what I said, that's ridiculous. Um, to claim that racism or any kind of oppression or um, dehumanization is based on novelty is uh, patently untrue. There's a, a known phenomenon of new things creating a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of suspicion, but uh, systems of power are based on systems of power. You know, the fact that uh, white people consider themselves superior to black people wasn't because black people were new to them. It was because white people benefited from the idea that black people were inferior, particularly during slavery. So newness doesn't, you know, in the same way that uh, why are women oppressed? Well, of course, women aren't anything new to men. And yet many men consider themselves superior to women or suspicious of women or have a lot of negative ideas about women. And so it, it doesn't have to do with novelty. So um, I I can't believe that I would say such a thing. Um, but if I did... Yeah, uh, I mean, at the very least, it's an oversimplification, and uh, and it's an idea that a lot of people will propose. I think, out of ignorance and possibly out of trying to excuse racism, you'll hear people say things like, "Well, you know, it's just it, it new things are just kind of strange and scary to people, and so you know, let it can't can't someone be a, a little suspicious of something they're not familiar with?" And I think. Sometimes people are saying that as a way of excusing homophobia or sexism or racism or colonialism or something. And it's like, you know, if they're truly coming from a place of ignorance, I, I, I'd, I'd welcome the conversation. But I think a lot of times they're they're trying to excuse systems of power and simplify it to a natural, quote unquote, natural human response to, to novelty, which is obviously not true when you look at the bigger picture. Next email from listener D from Toronto. She asks, what does treatment for trauma entail? Uh, end of question. Well, listen to all my emails on that, or all my episodes on that. I, I won't go into detail here. This next email is from listener Jolie from Seattle. She asks, can you address weaponized incompetence? End of question. Yeah, weaponized incompetence is a concept referring to when people fake incompetence as a way of manipulating others to do something. And... We all kind of do this. I do this sometimes. Uh, I, I'd like to think I don't do it so much anymore. Well, uh, no, I, I think maybe I used to do it with my wife, but um, 
I don't think I do it so much anymore. But there were times when, for myself, that I wouldn't want to do a chore around the house. And so I would act as though I was terrible at it as a way of tricking or manipulating my wife into just throwing her hands up and saying, fine, I'll do it. Now, I will tell you that I do 50% of the chores. I've always been militant about that. Uh, I've experienced many male clients who do not do 50% of the housework. And that's, I find extremely unfair and unreasonable and ridiculous and obviously sexist and immoral, immoral in some ways. So anyway, I would, I would never, you know, in my head, I'd be thinking, well, I'll make her do this one and I'll bake up for it by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, Lately, though, I haven't been doing that. I just, I just have a you know an upfront conversation with my wife about like, yeah, I'd, I could, could I just not do that? Could I do this instead? And you know, she'll do the same. So there's that. But you know, weaponized incompetence is something that you know it happens, and it's not okay. It's essentially lying and manipulative. There are more functional ways of saying, hey, you know, could, and it's something that I think a lot of men learn. Uh, and it, it's useful. It, it's sort of the the Homer, you know, like Homer Simpson. There's this trope and this belief that men are just incompetent. Like they don't know how to change a diaper. Oh, you know, men, they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to do the dishes. Men, And you're like, why? <laughs> There's nothing different about men that would make them, inco- you know, the same way it's like a woman can absolutely go to war. She can... Uh, be a firefighter. She can change the oil on a car, but we just have these genderized ideas. And when you're trying to get out of something, and maybe even you're trying to uphold toxic masculinity that states that if you do such feminine chores around the house, it makes you look like a weak non-man, then you might use weaponized incompetence. Next emails from listener Heather from Indiana. She says, How significant or detrimental is the role of disparity regarding access to seemingly available things like internet therapy or local fresh food sources? I live in rural, in a rural Midwest area. My husband works in IT for a school. I was shocked to learn how unreliable and even unavailable internet is here for some people. The school shutdowns created an instant need for in-home internet. However, many were entirely without the internet. End of email. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I've known about it, you know, my entire career because as a therapist that would do in-home therapy and a majority of those clients were, you know, poor and below the poverty line, I would see the contrast. You know, it's kind of weird. When I was an in-home family therapist for a time, the contracts involved anyone of any income level. So I would go from the richest neighborhoods in the Seattle area to the absolute poorest neighborhoods in Seattle. And... I would be in their house and I would see how they lived and I would, you know, contrast these two worlds, sometimes just a few blocks apart from each other. And you learn like, oh, you know, there's a there's a huge difference. And if you live in kind of a middle class bubble, especially on the Internet, (laughs) then you don't realize that there are a lot of people that are suffering from, you know, poverty such that they yeah, they literally don't have Internet at home. And in the United States, it's much, you know, much lower prevalence than it is in other places of the world. But there's still a lot of people who just, you know, they're literally barely surviving. And the money they have has to go to food. They they, 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 they need that, you know, plus Internet is expensive. Think about like your cable bill. Like, my goodness. 
which is how I get my internet it's through our cable company. It's just like, Jiminy Cricket's the bill every time it comes in the month. I'm just like, gee. But so, you know, it's it's not uncommon. And yeah, there's a massive disparity. And when, you know, people talk about like they're against universal health care or against universal college, uh, you know, paying for college. I feel like everyone's just assuming that everyone's middle class and can afford such things when it's obviously not true. So, and then you also bring up, you know, the access to therapy a hundred percent. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I know what to, what should be done is that politicians should allocate funds for therapy for everyone. That'll never happen. Or I don't think it'll ever happen. I mean, just trying to get um, universal healthcare is hard enough. Imagine everyone gets therapy. So, and then even if everyone had the money for therapy, it's hard to find the right therapist. It's hard to find a competent therapist. So, um, yeah, that's a huge problem. And I am often advocating for therapy. And then I, but then often in my head, I'm like, well, even if some of y'all are like highly motivated to find a therapist, it might be really, really hard to find one. And how are you going to pay for it when you do find one? So, yeah, it's a it's a huge problem on our side. It's ridiculous. You know, we're paying how many billions and trillions of dollars on this or that, like a new stealth plane or God knows what else we're wasting our money on. And yet people in our own town are dying or suffering severely. And during the lockdown, you had this massive awareness of these disparities, right? Because suddenly all the people who don't have internet are raising their hands like, um, uh, my kid can't do homeschool because our family literally doesn't have internet. And so suddenly everyone has to reckon with poverty and they have to go, Oh wait. So that's a thing. And it, it's just it's sad. It's sad that we live in a society that chooses to ignore it. That seemingly just doesn't want to care that shames people that thinks that, you know, and there's a good amount of voters who just think like, well, you did this to yourself. And it's like, no, they didn't, they didn't do it to themselves. Uh, you know, some people do do it to themselves, but the vast majority of people are, you know, below the poverty line because of circumstances. They went through a massive health problem. They experienced massive racism. They had a traumatic childhood and had some rough years when they were a teen in early twenties. They, um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people follow below the poverty line and, you know, become without a home and that sort of thing. And there's this attitude of just like, well, look at me, you know, I worked hard and I have a home and I have a job and it's like, good, you know, great. You worked hard, but God help you. If you actually experience some of the problems that these other people experienced, you know, then you'll be <laughs> realizing like, Oh, the reason why I've had such a stable life is because, you know, the, the cot, the universe chose not to afflict me with the various things that, afflict human beings you know um anyway moving on all right this next email is from listener sarah from philadelphia she says i believe i have met several people over the course of my academic career who are likely to be on the narcissistic personality disorder spectrum all of the individuals i met that i believe show symptoms of narcissistic personality had particularly difficult childhoods at, which would be conducive to causing narcissistic personality disorder 
I've known someone for several months now who seems to meet every single criteria for grandiose narcissistic personality disorder. However, this person is from a very cushy, spoiled background. The parents and other family members don't seem neglectful. They seem to provide an excessive amount of care for this person, which I believe has occurred in response to the unexpected loss of the individual's only sibling at a young age. Is it possible that overcare, helicopter parenting, and excessive admiration in childhood and beyond could also lead to the development of narcissistic personality disorder? End of email. No, um, you know, overcare and helicopter parenting and excessive admiration do not result in narcissistic personality disorder, in my experience and according to research. Might it result in um, a, a sense of self importance? Uh, some level of impaired empathy, yeah, but it won't be narcissistic personality disorder. It might look like narcissistic personality disorder, but the difference, you know, and I've I talked about this before, and it's it's all in my deep dive. But there are people who have been spoiled and believe they're entitled to things, but these people, if they were raised well enough and not neglected, will respond very quickly to ideas that they're not the center of the universe. I mean, not very quickly, but relatively quickly to people with narcissistic personality disorder. People with narcissistic personality disorder, they need to believe that they're the center of the universe. If they don't uphold that notion, then they crumble. Whereas people who have been shown that they're the center of the universe, once they're told they're not, it can be a little distressing. There might be a little bit of grief there, the way children go through normally when they're four you know every four-year-old realizes wait i'm not the center of the universe and it can you know it can be a little crushing to them but they go through it at the age age appropriate time but you can still go through that when you're 40 or 25 and there'll be some grief but they'll recover you know they'll they'll adjust they'll learn um and so that's a huge difference from you know someone who was socialized to be narcissistic versus needed to be narcissistic so there's that. The other thing is is that, you know, it sounds like, well, um, the other thing I'll say is that diagnosing narcissistic personality disorder can be really hard because there are other conceptualizations that I find might look like narcissistic personality disorder. Like there are other personality disorders, for example, or other presentations, other issues that, because you know, I think one of the issues right now is that the public are so familiar with NPD that anything that looks like NPD, they're like, Ooh, that's NPD. When in reality, it might be something else that people just aren't really uh, in a popular way aware of. Anyway, next emails from listener, Emily from Staten Island. She says, what is your take on diagnosing mental illness or a mental disorder when there is an underlying intellectual disability? How do you go about diagnosing them? I'm a speech-language pathology assistant at a high school. Um, she actually had a really long email, but um, there's a little excerpt here from the, from the middle. I don't think I've ever come across a student who, who was diagnosed with a mental disorder other than autism. I've suspected some students of mine over the years may have other disorders going undiagnosed, such as schizophrenia, bipolar, or borderline personality disorder. End of email. Or end of the excerpt. Um, yeah, so... In schools, as I think you're seeing, Emily, there can sometimes be a, a shortcut to diagnosing. And there are certain labels that are trendy, such as autism or autism spectrum or ADHD. And, uh, you know, statistics show that a large percentage of kids, something like 20%, maybe more, 
are suffering from an anxiety disorder. Yet, how often have you come across a kid in school diagnosed with an anxiety disorder? In fact, anxiety is much more common than autism and um, ADHD combined. And yet, you never hear kids like, oh, that kid has panic or that kid has generalized anxiety or that kid has PTSD or something or OCD. And so... Um, with their trends and uh, why is that well one is is that people get lazy Um, also uh, there's not a lot of awareness and you know lazy is a bad word Um, these systems can sometimes often be overloaded you'll have as a school psychologist you might literally have hundreds of kids that you're supposed to be evaluating and you just don't have the time and you just want the kid to get services, and if you label them with autism spectrum or ADHD or some other trendy thing, sometimes bipolar, then and it gets them the services that they need and everyone is happy, you move on in life. Um, so there's that. The other thing is it's hard to diagnose kids because, especially when they're really young, because you can't really get them to tell you what's happening for them. And so you end up having to just watch them or get reports from teachers and parents and diagnose them that way, which would be hard. And so... It's easier to diagnose people when you can ask for them for their experience. You know, what's it like to be inside their head? So there's that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're you're like, wait, I think some people are suffering from things that are in addition to what is being treated, and I don't know what to do. And if you're in that situation, Emily, you know, talk to the talk to the people who do the assessments, because in all likelihood, the psychologist, the therapist they are interested in that. And, you know, maybe you're wrong and off base, but any information, you know, if I was treating a kid, so I don't know if this is your scenario, Emily, but, um, you know, it wouldn't be, back when I worked with kids in, in schools, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be completely overloaded, you know, to have dozens of clients that I, none of them I have time for, enough for. And, I, you know, go to the school or they come to my office and and I get the file and they've already been diagnosed with X, Y, or Z. And I do my treatment and I do my assessment kind of, but we got to get to the nitty gritty because they're in crisis this week. And so I do my job for an hour and then I say goodbye to them and then I move on to the next client. And never do I have the brain capacity or the time to sit down and be like, is this diagnosis accurate? What else could we be doing here? You know, sometimes I would have that ability, but sometimes I wouldn't. And it, it was just the reality of that kind of crappy job. And, but when someone came to me, like a, you know, assistant uh, speech pathologist person, uh, came to me and said, hey, you know, I have some thoughts about this kid and I've seen the file and I, I feel like there's some other information here. And I always welcomed that. Like, yeah, please tell me, what do you got there? What, 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 what have you seen? And it gave me an opportunity to, to kind of think about a client a little bit more and to coordinate with others. And so I, I would bring it up. I would bring it up to those other people. Just be like, hey, you know, this kid looks like they have some, you know, delusions or, you know, you're talking about schizophrenia. You know, bring it up. Having said that, you might bring it up and everyone just rejects you because they don't have the time or they consider it insulting that an assistant speech pathologist would step into their world. You know, and there's only so much you can do, which is unfortunate. Listener Lana from Russia emailed in. She says, is it normal to ask for words of affection in a relationship? 
I've been in a relationship with my girlfriend for almost four years and have always been very open about my need to hear words of affection from her. But she says I shouldn't expect something like that from her and that it's not like her and she can't do that. Three years ago, she said, I'm not sure, but I probably love you. Since then, I heard her say I love you only twice and only when we were broken up and it felt like she was trying to get me back. Uh, Just skipping forward here. Uh, Is it normal to expect words of affection or do I ask for too much? End of email. Yeah, I mean, this is related to previous email that it's totally fine that you, well, the focus should be on security. Um, You deserve to feel secure in your relationship with your partner. How do you get there though? And maybe for your partner, she can make you feel secure without stepping out of her you know, comfort zone by saying, I love you a lot. So uh, now it might be a deal breaker though. You know, it might be like, hey, this isn't gonna work for me if you don't, if you're not affectionate. So um, what do I say? There are some people who they, they find it, easy to show love in one way and really hard to show love in another way. And if you can adjust to that and see it for what it is, then the relationship will work in that way. But if you can't adjust, then it's going to make it really hard to make it work. I'm guessing Lana, that you have made it work to some extent. You've been with her for four years, even though she's only said, I love you two and a half times. So I'm guessing something kept you going. And I'm guessing that, your girlfriend does a lot of things that make you feel loved, you know, hugging, kissing, being there for you, you know, uh, gifts. Um, but there's this thorn in your side of, I want her to say that she loves me. It might be a deal breaker, or maybe you're just overly focusing on that because you have insecurities. Now, I will say that, well, you're from Russia, and I've heard people from Russia, they're not, I don't know about in intimate relationships, but I've heard people from Russia tell me that um, they're not frequently verbally like that. (laughs) So it might be a Russia thing. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. The thing that I hear about is like people from Russia will say that Americans are overly nice in public in a fake way. So anyway, I, I don't know if that applies to intimate relationships, but so I think I answered it as best I could. Listener Ryan from Los Angeles asks, any advice for someone who thinks they may want to become a therapist? I've seriously considered going back to school to become a therapist. Uh, Do you have any advice for someone who has a lot of communal work to look forward to? End of email. Um, My advice for people who want to become a therapist is to really make sure that you want to become a therapist because it's a huge investment of time and money. And there are people who go to graduate school and either halfway through or even at the end decide it's not for them and they bail. And it's it's not the end of the world, but it's not a great thing to have happen because the education doesn't necessarily apply to other fields. It can. But anyway, so really make sure. And I would give it some time. Uh, for me, I only gave it like a week <laughs> from the time I considered being a therapist for the first time to the time I started applying to programs, it was probably just like a month and it it worked out for me, but I I wouldn't recommend that people do that. I would, I would really let it sit for a while and maybe even a couple years just to really make sure that the desire to become a therapist is consistent. Um, Other advice is think about what kind of job you want to do. 
and maybe the population that you want to work with and then figure out what degree will get you there. Regarding population you want to work with, that for me has had drastically changed a lot during my first you know, few years of being a therapist. When I first decided to be a therapist, I wanted to work with bands. I wanted to talk, you know, with musical bands because I was in a band at the time and thought if only bands had therapists, they could stay together longer and be more productive and get along better. But I didn't know at the time, it seems kind of obvious that there's no market for that. There's not a lot of bands looking for therapists, if any. (laughs) So, there are some famous examples like Smashing Pumpkins and Metallica. There's actually documentaries about it. But um, once I started to work in internships and, and whatnot, I found that, oh, I actually like working with kids and teenagers and da, da, da. So it's hard to know what sort of population you'll like working with. But that's another thing to think about. Anyway, that's my – and then listen to all my other – you can go to the, our website and click on – I think it's the tab is novice clinicians, and there's a, there's a fair amount of episodes dedicated to this question. Listener Sarah from Connecticut just wanted to thank me for re-sparking her interest in psychology. So you're very welcome for that, Sarah, and thank you for thanking me. By the way, um, when you do email in a thanks or an appreciative email, I see it, but I don't always respond on the air because it seems like it would get a little redundant. <laughs> so I, I always appreciate that. Believe me, I, I read all those emails. I take them to heart. Thanks a lot. Next email, listener Alex from North Carolina. She says, is anger the root of anxiety? When I went to see a therapist about my anxiety, she told me that anger is the root of all anxiety. In my case, I know my anxiety is fear-based from my early childhood traumas, but she would not let up on the anger piece. I felt extremely uncomfortable and never returned. My question is, is that a typical therapy theory that anger is the root of all anxiety? Is it common to have anxiety without anger? End of email. Well, I've never heard this before. So is it is it typical? Uh, it's not typical to me or anyone in my circle. And I'm, I'm curious as to what the therapist even means by that, that I'm trying to hypothesize that anger is the root of all anxiety. So someone comes in to me and they're like, I'm, I'm a, I feel a lot of anxiety all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I've generalized. I worry a lot. I'm hypervigilant about things. I'm preoccupied with things. And then someone next to me said, well, you know, that's all, that's all at the root of that anxiety is anger. What I would assume they meant by that would be that maybe the path to um, facing one's anger or one's anxiety is to get angry about it or your um, fear your traumas in which you felt afraid were situations that you deserve to be angry in, you know, like you're being neglected. And so it's more rational to be angry about the neglect um, instead of internalizing this fear of the outside world. So I don't know. Uh, at the very least, you didn't see eye to eye with your therapist and you never went back. And so, um, and it sounds like the therapy, you know, it's it's one thing for a therapist, for me, let's say I say something and my clients don't agree with it. You know, that's fine. But how do I react? Do I just double down and keep saying, no, you understand, you know, da-da-da? Or do I say, well, you know, it's just a mo-. I always say that, and I say that on a podcast, too. It's just like, look, this is just a model of a way of looking at things. It, it might not be useful to you. I don't know. But it's not like, you know, if I had an, an 
uh, a notion like anger is the root of anxiety and someone pushed back on it, I'd be like, well, you know, you're right as much as I am. It's just, it's just a model. It's just a way of looking at the world. So I, it sounds like the therapist didn't respond well to that, you know, but so if your answer, if your question is, is it normal for me to have run from a therapist that said such a thing and then doubled down when I pushed back? Um, yeah, that's fine. And especially cause you're saying, you know, I have early childhood traumas and I would like the therapist to just kind of sit with that. <laughs> the fact that I was traumatized and have legitimate reasons to be afraid and that it's not some, um, you know, secondary manifestation of anger, you know, plus what does that even mean? And specifically to my model of emotion, anger is usually a response to fear or hurt. So it's my, in my model, it's the opposite at the root of anger is either anxiety or pain. Next email from anonymous listener. She says, what type of therapy would you recommend for adult children of alcoholics? End of question. Uh, it's hard to know. You know, it's not like adult children of alcoholics all suffer from the exact same thing by any means. So really it would depend on the presentation. And honestly, um, what type of therapy? I get that question occasionally, and it's hard for me to answer because, you know, I could say, oh, you, you, you know, you need this kind of therapy. But unless you found a therapist that did it well, it might not work, right? So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I would think about if you are an adult child of, of of an alcoholic, I would think about what your issues are as best as you can approximate them. And then I wouldn't necessarily think of a type of therapist, but I would call therapists and I would say, okay, these are my three issues. What would you do with me? And uh, that's the probably the best way because even if I said, well, you got to find this type of therapist, and then you go to that type of therapist, they're not. It's not guaranteed that that therapist will be the best person for you. Now, how do you know the best answer? You know, from a therapist, I don't know. I kind of hope that even a lay person would be able to hear a therapist that knew what they were doing. Um, at the very least, you would get a response from the therapist that would give you an idea of whether or not giving this therapist three to five thera- three to five sessions would be warranted. And that's usually what you're looking for is, you know, is it, is this therapist worth me trying them out for three to five sessions and seeing if we're a match? All right. This next email anonymous listener says, how do I overcome rumination? I recently made a mistake at work and I never thought I would make that. I never thought I would make, and I am struggling with resilience afterwards. Uh, thank you for discussing failure in a previous episode and of email. So how do you overcome rumination? Well, it depends on the rumination. If it is like OCD type rumination, then obviously OCD treatment, possibly medication and also exposure therapy can help there. If it's self-esteem issue, if it's, you know, self-esteem related rumination, then obviously working on one's self-esteem. If it's an internalized voice from your past, then, exploring that and fighting against it in your mind and healing from the criticism that you were, you know, there's a lot of different paths to rumination. So, you know, that's my short answer to that. All right. This next email is from listener Prissy from Chicago. She says, is it overbearing and controlling of me to ask my husband, my boyfriend to communicate? My boyfriend is my boyfriend of six years has a habit of saying he will be coming home for example, at 8 p.m., and then he starts avoiding calls, doesn't communicate with me that he is out with friends, and basically shows up home at 5 a.m. 
Like he literally calls me saying he's on his way home and then then just doesn't come home. I've expressed a billion times why this bothers me. I've been exp- I've even expressed that every time he does this, it destroys my trust with him. His reason is that he doesn't like to be controlled. He doesn't like to answer to people. Am I crazy? End of email. So I've talked about this before in both reaction videos and on the podcast, but there are two possibilities, if not both present. One is what he's saying is that he doesn't like to be controlled and he has a complex around it developed when he was a child and maybe even during his teenage years. And he treats you like you're his mother in that, you know, when you're a mom and you call your teenage son, you know, where are you? It or any kid of any gender, it wouldn't be uncommon for the kid to be like, oh, crap, I got to be home right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on my way home, even though it's a total lie. We sort of allow kids to do that. We don't like it when kids do it, but kids will do that. Uh, or you call them and you're like, are you drinking? Are you high? And the kid's like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then they are high or they are drunk or something. It's normal for kids to do that. But some people retain that mindset into adulthood. If you watch my 90 day fiance reaction videos, think of, um, uh, think of Jenny and summit, you know, summit will do that sometimes where he'll say he'll lie in this very childish way, even though it shoots him in the foot, like your boyfriend totally shoots him in the foot. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm on my way home. I'll, I'll be home at eight o'clock. And then he shows up at five in the morning. Why would you, why wouldn't you just say, no, I'm not coming home. Like it's going to be real. You know, when you lie like that, it, it's going to be, you're going to be found out. It's like, there's an obvious difference between 8 PM and 5 AM. <laughs> like there's no way to get out of that lie. You know what I mean? So some people have a complex around that and you might, you might be playing into it either inadvertently or even your own, having your own traumas, your own codependency or controlling uh, issues coming through, who knows, but at the very least he's definitely participating in that and pushes you into it. And, you know, your, your question is interesting. You know, is it overbearing and controlling of me to ask him to communicate? So it's not, there's nothing wrong with you expecting him not to lie. There's nothing wrong with you saying, Hey, I just want to know when you're coming home and I want you to just tell me because then I'll, I'll be okay. If you, if you say you're going to come home at 5 a.m., then just tell me that. But it's possible that you're not actually like that. If I were to talk to him, he would tell me that you are controlling and that you do micromanage him and that you do get angry when he goes out with his friends or something. And so th- you might both be playing a part in a dynamic that is very common, which is the dynamic that I'm describing. I'm not accusing you of that. It's possible that you're totally flexible and you're totally nice and you're totally differentiated and you never nag him about anything and he's just treating you this way, which leads me to the second possibility, which is that some people have a knee-jerk reaction. Essentially, it's pathological lying. And I don't know if you heard the episode with me and Birdo. I might have actually taken it down because we fought pretty hard on the podcast. It wasn't hard, but... Basically, my co-host, Umberto, he, this was, I don't know, five years ago, four years ago or something, he invited me to a Halloween party with friends that I did not know. And it was pretty far away. It was like 45 minutes away from our house. And he says, yeah, um, you know, let's go to this Halloween party. And I was like, oh, okay. And um, we were going to meet at the house party. 
And so I told him, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to get there before you do, because I don't know anyone there. So I, I just, I just want to get there when you get there. And, um, so I said, call me when you leave your house, because when, if I leave, when you leave your house, I'll probably get there around the same time. And then when the night came around, um, I had some friends over to my house and we were having a good time. And at some point I, I texted Berto and I was, I was like, so, you know, when are we going to this party? And then he started to respond to me like, oh yeah, uh, soon we did uh, this kind of frantic uh, texting back. And I, and I was like, oh crap. Cause I've been down this road before with him that when he gets anxious about disapproval from me about, especially about something like this, he'll start lying. And so I, I said to him, look, even if we miss tonight's party, I don't care. Also, if we get there late, I also don't care because I don't care about this party. I'm having a good time. I, I was really trying to stress to him, I'm okay with getting there really late. You know, it's a Halloween party. If we get there at 11 p.m. at night, it's fine. I don't, I don't really care. And so I was really, tr- I, I was like, I just don't want to get there before you do. And so when it, you know, take your time, no rush. Whenever you leave, just let me know. And I'm, I'm really trying to make it so that he won't lie to me because I knew he would lie to me and uh, or I knew he was prone to lying. I knew he was prone to saying, yeah, I left. And then I get in the car and drive up there and he's an hour behind and he never did leave. He's just saying he left because he thinks I'm upset at him or something. And we were kind of going back and forth the email and I, I kept saying to him, like, relax, everything's fine. I don't you know, don't rush. There's I don't need I and. I was going overboard with my communication with him about, I just don't want to get there before you do. Um, so, but he kept interpreting it because of his own traumas. He wasn't listening to me. He wasn't actually reading my text. All he heard was this distortion around, you're late. I want to go to the party right now. How come you're so slow and not punctual? Like, that's what he heard me saying when I was 100% saying the opposite. I literally didn't care about this party. It's a bunch of people I don't know. And I have friends over to my house. I don't care. I'm having a good time. It's Halloween. Let it go. But I was really trying to stress. And I and I, I was trying to engineer this experience where I just did not want to get there before he did. Now, I don't know why I was so focused on that, but... It just felt weird. Plus, it was way out in the middle of nowhere. And I just felt like it just felt, I don't know, it just felt weird to show up with. And plus, I was bringing a bunch of my friends. So it just felt weird for me to show up at someone else's party. And he actually didn't even know these people very well. Anyway, so so um, we so he says, OK, I, I left. I left. And I'm like, are you sure you're in the car driving? Because I don't want you to say you've left when you actually haven't left and it's not a big deal. I just don't want to get there before you do. I I, I said something like that over text and he's like, yeah, I'm in the car. We're on the freeway. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, if they're on the freeway, if we get in the car, by the time we get in the car and on the freeway ourselves, we'll get, we'll get there, you know, 10 minutes behind him. So we get in the car, we're driving up there and we get to the location and we parked the car and I instantly text Berto and I said, where are you? Cause you know, we just, we just arrived and he's like, he's like, Oh, we're almost there. And I'm thinking you're almost here. That doesn't make any sense. You should have been here way before us. But I'm like, Oh, okay. No big deal. And so I, we go to the house and we're standing on the cold sidewalk. You know, it's cold uh, late October evening. And I'm like, well, well, we'll wait for you outside. And he's, he's like, Oh, okay. 
And, you know, we're standing around, me and my friends, we're just chatting, talking, talking, you know, 10, 15 minutes pass. And I'm like, I text him again. I'm like, so you're almost here? He's like, yeah, 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 I'm parking. I'm parking. And I'm like, I can see all the parking spots. He's not here, but he says he's parking. And I'm like, okay. And at this point, I'm like, he's he's probably still home right now. Because and because this has hap- this had happened so many times <laughs> with him, of like this lying, this like compulsive lying about and inventing in his mind that I'm you know I'm overbearing and controlling, which I c- did not care. <laughs> I didn't care about this party really. I didn't care about getting there on time. And but he made me into a nagging person that compelled him to feel like he had to lie to me like in his mind it was all justified that he was lying to me because he was so scared of my disapproval or i don't know what it was just it was really bizarre i mean and it had happened so many times with me and him that and i'd seen it for what it was that by the time we got to this instance i was really careful to be as nice as possible and to be as like flexible and clear as possible. And yet it still happened. So then after another 15 minutes and I'm like, he says he's parking, but he's nowhere near here. And he said he was on the freeway like an hour and a half ago on a trip that should have taken him 40 minutes. So he clearly wasn't in on the freeway or he took a detour that he failed to mention or something. And so we're stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, well, I might as well go into the party because we're freezing our asses off. So we go into the party and we're in there for 25 minutes, maybe longer. And then Umberto shows up. And one of the first things I said to him was, Berto, like, if you're not leaving on time, just tell me. I just didn't want to get here before you did. I don't understand. You said you were parking. That was 45 minutes ago. You clearly weren't parking unless you were parking in another city or something and walked all the way over. And I was just like, and he's like, no, 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 I I was on the freeway. I told you. I'm like, that's impossible. Your house is closer to this house than my house is. You said you were on the freeway. We were still inside. We, you know, got our coats together. We got into the car, drove to get so out of it. it. There's no way you were actually on the freeway. Also, there's no way you were parking 35 minutes ago, unless it took you 35 minutes to park. You were lying then too. And and I wasn't super like enraged about it. It was just sad kind of um, repetition. And it wasn't the end of the world. The people were nice when we walked in. But but this kind of behavior is enraging Prissy from Chicago, listener Prissy from Chicago. If that's what your husband is doing to you, your boyfriend is doing to you, I get it. It's like just stand on your own fucking two feet and tell the truth. Stop lying. Maybe I'll be upset. Maybe I won't. But don't lie like you're a child. (laughs) You know, like grow up. But people have traumas and they fall into, you know, when people do this kind of lying, it's not necessarily a personal choice. They're so distorted from their traumas and schemas that they don't even see the same world that you do. To them, you are being overbearing. To them, they have to lie to you in order to preserve the relationship. To them, if they don't lie, you're going to reject them forever and never talk to them again. That's how it feels to them. Of course, that's not what's happening. (laughs) So 
I don't know if you're playing a part in it, Prissy, or you're not. Either way, I'd go to couples therapy because that sounds absolutely untenable. Sext email listener Camilla asks, is dependent personality disorder hard to diagnose when you're young? I'm 18 and I want to get tested for it, but I don't know if it's just that I'm really young and haven't learned how to quote unquote adult yet. End of email. Yeah, eight with dependent personality disorder, it would be harder when you're younger, but it, I could, I could assess it pretty easily. It might just take me a little longer with someone who's 18 because at the core of dependent personality disorder is a, is an extreme distortion around one's incompetence and one's responsibility to others that I feel like I have a, you know, somewhat good gauge from my work with 18 year olds in the past, what an 18 year old should, you know, what's the normal range of 18 year old responsibility and um, competence level, you know, for example, 18 year olds, like when I was 18, I didn't do my laundry which might be a little weird. My mom did my laundry, but I did buy my own toiletries and I did clean my own bathroom. I did go to school. I, I drove myself to school. I, you know, made my own plans with my friends. Um, I thought about what I wanted to do with my future. Um, you know, there were things that I definitely was dependent upon my parents. And if my mom had asked me to do my own laundry, I probably would have balked at that to some extent. I also wasn't paying my own bills. I wasn't paying for my own health insurance, you know, all that stuff. So I, I was doing some things for myself and some things I did feel competent to doing. I didn't want to do. I, I wanted my mommy and daddy to do those things for me. Uh, so there's a normal range there. And of course, I'm just one person. I'm not like the standard or the average. But if, for example, at 18, Camilla, you feel extremely incompetent compared to other 18 year olds. If you feel extremely dependent on your parents, much more so than other 18 year olds, then yeah. Uh, now, you know, might you just be going through a phase at 18? It could be, but at the very least it's worth going to therapy for and, and helping yourself, you know, nothing, you know, no harm can come from you talking with a therapist about how to challenge your, internalized schemas of incompetence you know this is, i can't imagine that harming you All right this next email is from listener rebecca she says is seeing best friends spouses exes or close family members of well-established clients ethical when the well-established client came into therapy for betrayal trauma and trust issues from the new client are there ethical codes at the apa for these types of situations how can the ethical codes change or become more detailed in this area as to not traumatize patients or clients? End of email. All right. Well, Rebecca, I'm guessing from your question, what happened was you have betrayal traumas, which is obviously not your fault. And you went to therapy, which is good. And your ther and you went to your, ther your therapist for a long time. And you have a lot of importance in that relationship with that therapist, which is also good. But then your therapist accepted someone close to you as a client, like a family member or an ex or something, and that hurt your feelings and that made you feel betrayed and it made you worried as to whether or not your therapist is really on your side, whether or not you could really trust your therapist. 
which is also normal and okay. And you're asking, is it ethical? Well, it's not unethical or ethical. And it, you're, you're also asking, you know, how can the ethical codes be changed to become more detailed? I'm guessing that you know that it, it isn't specifically discussed. I'm, I'm guessing your therapist might, might have even said that, that your therapist said, uh, well, it's actually not technically unethical. The bottom line is, is that you feel betrayed by your therapist, and I would work on that. It, it's given your betrayal traumas, this would happen one way or the other. I'm not saying what your therapist did was right, and I'll talk about that in a second. But you are, if therapy is working and you like your therapist, and the fact that you feel betrayed by your therapist is, and, you're, and if your therapist is willing to talk with you about that and provide a corrective experience, then you're in, you're in the sweet spot of therapy. Your work, you, you have transference of betrayal onto the therapist, and you have an opportunity to have your therapist care for you and not abandon you and not betray you. But you have to be open potentially to the idea that your therapist didn't do anything inherently wrong. Uh, but that's up to you. I don't know if that's the situation. It kind of sounds like you, that, that is. Um, but generally speaking, when we're treating clients, we want to be cautious about accepting people who are close to them as clients. You know, if I'm, if I'm treating someone and their best friend comes to me or their, their ex partner comes to me or something, uh, generally speaking, I wouldn't accept them as a client, particularly if, yeah, my original client had betrayal traumas, but there are circumstances where I would, and there are also circumstances where I wouldn't know, uh, you know, someone could hire me as their therapist and just fail to mention that they know you, you know, how, if I didn't know, how would I know? And then say we're three months into the therapeutic relationship and suddenly I realize, oh, you're the former partner of my other client. You know, I wouldn't say that out loud because I couldn't reveal that. Um, or that, you know, the client could literally tell me that three months in and say, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I know my former partner is seeing, has been seeing you for a while. Then I'd be kind of at an ethical dilemma where I'd be like, well, I, I probably shouldn't be seeing this person because it'll threaten my relationship with my original client, but it'd be kind of, uh, harmful to my second client if I terminate three months in and I should have screened them earlier or something. But there's also just different attitudes about this. Some, some therapists don't really care that much about treating different people uh, that are close to each other, especially if you're in a small town, um, especially if you kind of need the clients, that kind of thing. So it's not inherently unethical. It can be harmful you could make an argument for that. If you want to make a complaint to the state, you know, they can take a look at it. It could be found to be unethical. But uh, I suspect that the best course of action for you is to use this in therapy, to really get into it and say, I feel betrayed by you. And hopefully your therapist can rise to the occasions and say, I hear you and I, I can see how you would feel that way. I want to be clear. I didn't do anything unethical and I didn't purposely try to hurt you, but I could see how you would feel that way. And I'm sorry. And I care about you. And I want to reassure you that my involvement with any of my clients would, would never interfere with my relationship with you. You know, some along those lines, All right? This next email is from listener, Joe from Portland. She says, can you talk about adults with baby blankets? Can you talk about adults with baby blankets? Well, 
it's not really an area I know that much about, but I suspect that it depends, you know, that for some adults with baby blankets, it's not a problem, meaning that it's just another manifestation of our comfort items. You know, some people will have like a, like a, like for example, it's Christmas time and I have, uh, you know, Christmas trees up in our house and there are certain ornaments that are very special to me that go back to when I was a child and, and, you know, a baby blanket could be kind of in that direction or an adult who still holds on to a stuffed animal, that kind of thing. Um, I th- or someone that holds on to a, a hoodie that they just really love, even though it's all tattered, it just makes them feel good to have it. So, you know, a baby blanket could be something along those lines, just a normal manifestation of object comfort. Or obviously I think what you suspect, Joe, is that for some adults, it's a sign of trauma, a sign of neglect. Um, you know, when a child, you know, most children will get attached to certain objects when they're really young as what we call transitional objects or comfort objects. But they usually graduate away from it at some point. Sometimes it can take a long time. Like you might have a 12-year-old who still has a baby blanket, that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, by the time you're 15, 20, people usually discard those. You could argue they just replace them with something else. But You could also argue that they get rid of them too soon, and you have a lot of sad 15- and 20-year-olds. But for some, you you know, if if I met someone who, as an adult, still had a baby blanket, I would wonder if they – I would wonder what their early childhood experiences were like and what the blanket provides to them currently. I, of course, would never say to them, you shouldn't have it. I would just wonder what they went through. But, you know, let's say that – Uh, we did discover they were traumatized and we do a lot of work on that trauma and they heal to, you know, to a great extent, but they still hold on to the baby blanket. I would say totally fine. You know, we have this um, judgment about it, right? People will be like, Oh, that's so childish, but who cares? It's just a stupid blanket. Like, let it go. All right. This next email is from listener Olivia from Chicago. She says, how can you compartmentalize your empathy? Being highly empathetic is one of my favorite qualities about myself, and it's part of why I'm in school to become a therapist. I remember in the episode about family annihilators, you discussed with Umberto that people tend to obsess over current news stories even when it's not good for them. When the recent tragedy occurred at the Travis Scott Astroworld Festival, it really disturbed me to the point where I felt anxiety all day. I think it's because I listen to his music so much that I felt connected but I couldn't stop watching graphic TikToks when they kept popping up on my feed. I am not a sheltered or naive person, and it's not that I'm shocked when bad things happen. It's more that any time a tragedy happens, I relate to it in my own life, and it's hard for me to go on with my day without feeling anxious. Meanwhile, my boyfriend says he can go on social media and separate most of it from his own life. Does this make any sense? End of email. Yeah, so people are different in this way. And what I'll say is, you know, I wouldn't say it's compartmentalizing empathy. I would say that it's, I would say that you're out of the ordinary, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with you, but you're the typical person when they see tragedies happen to people who aren't really connected to them, especially if they don't identify with them, then 
they don't they don't humanize those people. It's when you hear for the typical American, for example, if they hear a story about people starving in Africa or something or refugees in Syria, they just don't identify unless you're Syrian or you, you you've recently emigrated from Africa or something, you know, they're for, but for the typical white American, they, you know, they just don't, and really anyone, you know, I'm guessing the mainstream Chinese person also doesn't identify with the Syrian refugees. So it's just a matter of do we, and there's a lot of studies on this that that we, that we could, we consider some people to be of our tribe and we consider other people to not be of our tribe. There's in group out group and the people in our in group and maybe a little bit outside our in group. We, when bad things happen to them, it affects us. Um, you know, it's sort of like if you heard about someone breaking into someone's house in another state, that would be one thing. Whereas if you're on next door, the app next door app, and you hear about someone, someone's house being broken into a few blocks down, then it affects you more, right? Because it's it's more close to you. Or I guess a better way of, of another better example is if someone died of COVID two states away and it was a random person just reported dying. Whereas if you heard on next door that some random person that you don't know also died of COVID, but they but they live a few blocks down, it you know we t- not always, but we tend to it tends to affect us more. And so it's a normal thing. Whereas for you, it sounds like you empathize with everyone, no matter where, where they are or who they are around the world. And, and that's okay. And that's, you know, it's admirable. And as you say, you know, it's, it's a good quality to have, but there's pros and cons. As you know, the con is, is that you're highly affected as if all bad tragedies are close to you. And that can take its toll. Cause you know, a lot of bad qualities are happening all the time um so that would be my guess on that um and you say that you know my boyfriend says he can go on social media and separate most of it from his own life yeah that's more typical i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying it's it's more within the typical norm uh but the other thing you say is that i couldn't stop watching the graphic tiktoks when they kept popping up on my feed and i think this is a problem with tiktok because you know the way tiktok operates is you don't really have a choice over what it feeds you, right? The algorithm just, you know, starts spitting stuff at you. Like the way Pandora will pick songs for you kind of thing. And you can you can skip, obviously. You can say, yeah, I'm not really interested. But it the algorithm kind of knows what things you you are likely to watch, you know? And if you are a fan of Travis Scott and you're going to get fed that kind of stuff. And so you want to be careful about what, you know, when you watched the, so the first video you watched on TikTok of the track of the Astroworld festival tragedy, the algorithm said, Oh, this is a person that likes to watch that. It doesn't, it doesn't know exactly what the content is. It's just, there's certain flags about, you know, content titles or keywords. And so it just started feeding all this stuff to you and you kept watching it, which can absolutely take a toll. So although if you perhaps hadn't seen the TikToks, you might have still cared deeply about the people at the festival, but watching those videos, especially those videos, 
that can cause PTSD. So you want to be careful, Olivia, about watching that. Anyone, everyone has to be careful. You know, like what I was saying in the Family Annihilators with Brito is that current news story, just because something's happening in the news and just because you care and just because you want to know more information does not mean it's healthy to expose yourself to trauma. You know, it's if let's get away from social media and news and let's just say that there's a, you know, let's say you live in this weird fantasy world where in your backyard there's a fence and on the other side of the fence is another country and in that country there's genocide happening. And if you go to your backyard and you peer over the fence, you can see people regularly being murdered and slaughtered and strung up and skinned alive, you know, just all sorts of horrific, you know, sexually assaulted children being bashed against rocks, you know, just terrible, terrible things. Is it, do you think that if you looked at that, it, it wouldn't harm you? Of, of course, you know that it would harm you. If you looked over that fence you, and you peered even for five seconds into that violent, horrible, uh, you know, stuff, then you're not going to be able to sleep at night. You're, you potentially could have PTSD for the rest of your life. You might develop dissociation. You might um, lose your faith in humanity, you know, especially if you continually watched it. Now, that's not the same as the, the Astroworld Festival, but it's, you know, it's in that direction. And somehow, so if I said to you, uh, you know, on the other side of the fence, there's all these horrible things happening, um, would you look? I, th- I would hope most people would say, no, I would not look. <laughs> because if, if I didn't have any ability to, to help, then I'm only causing myself problems by, by looking. Why would I look? I might march in the streets for the genocide, you know, stop the genocide. I might call my politicians. I might try to get across the fence to save people, but I'm not going to just sit there helpless on my side of the fence and watch. That's not a healthy thing to do. So the neighbor next door, let's say the neighbor next door doesn't do anything. And you ask your neighbor, like, do you know about the genocide going on in our backyard, you know, on the, on the other side of the fence? And the neighbor's like, yeah, I read about it every once in a while. And you're like, well, how come you're not looking at it? And the neighbor's like, because I don't want to traumatize myself. You can't look to that person and say, I can't believe you're not paying attention to it. You can't look to that person and say, well, you're just sticking your head in the sand. You know, look at me. I'm looking at it. And that's not helping. Looking at it isn't necessarily helping. It might be if it is to spread information. You know, there's, you can, there are ways of spreading information that could actually help and advocate. But if you're just looking at TikTok videos or you're just obsessing about the news and you're just absorbing everything, you, it's possible that you're, you're only harming yourself and you're doing nothing to actually solve the problem. You're doing nothing to actually provide empathy. You might be feeling bad for these people, but they don't know you're feeling bad. And commenting on a TikTok video isn't necessarily going to help the world change. You know, I guess it might, but who knows? So, and can you comment on TikTok videos? (laughs) I'm guessing you can. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah. So, Olivia, when you tell me you are, you know, feeling anxiety all day and you're like, it's because I'm empathetic. But then you also tell me that you're watching TikTok videos all day long that keep popping up on your feed that are showing you graphic death, by the way. These videos that are on TikTok, you're literally watching people die. And in a horrific, suffocating fashion. And 
humanless or slightly psychopathic fashion in which everyone around seems to not care, including the, you know, the organizers, including Travis Scott. It just it just looks like the the worst of humanity. That's the way it looked. And I did I talked, you know, in detail about that whole thing in another episode. But so if if you were my client and you came to me and you said, um, I'm feeling anxiety all day. I'd be like, why? It's like, well, you know, because I'm so empathetic about the Travis Scott thing. I'd be like, oh, okay. And then a half an hour later, you said, well, I, yeah, I, I watched dozens of videos on TikTok of graphic violence and people dying. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why did you do that to yourself? <laughs> like, that's a choice that you made. And it's your choice to make. And if, if you feel like that is important and you're okay with the with the downside of that, then okay. But what I find is that when I tell people, Umberto included, um, and he has since come around to my point of view, that you should probably be careful about that for your own sake. Um, what some people do, they'll get defensive and they'll say like, well, I don't want to put my head in the sand and, you know, and well, but I need to know what's happening. And, and so I would just watch out for that. Have you said that? Yeah, you might also be a very empathetic person, someone who cares deeply. You know, I I feel like I'm kind of that way. Like, there are things that I I feel like. Oh, what's a what's a, an example of this? Well, one of the things that I felt and and feel periodically early in my career once I learned this was how many children are being abused. And as a therapist, I was like, I'm here to help, you know, I'm on the front lines to stop child abuse. And pretty quickly, I realized I wasn't going to be able to do much, you know, I could do stuff about what happened to come into my office. But even the stuff that came into my office, I wasn't necessarily going to be able to change. And I realized that in every neighborhood, there are, you know, many, many children being abused on an ongoing basis and maybe like in the moment. Sorry, I had to take a break right there. I had to stop the recording because I heard upstairs a big thud, thud, like something like a, and a bookcase fell on the ground or something. And my dog started barking. I was like, huh? So I went upstairs and uh, Stacy had slipped and fallen. <laughs> she's okay, but she was pretty upset at herself that she slipped. I think she's wearing socks or something, slipped on the ground. Anyway, she's okay, but uh, I don't know where I was. I, th- I think what I was saying was that it's early in my career, I realized that you know sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse was happening and there wasn't anything I could do much about it. And I mean, there were some things I could do kind of, but not nearly enough. There wasn't enough, like there wasn't enough therapists in the world or enough social workers in the world to stop it from happening. And it was just going to keep happening for the rest of my life. And every now and then, you know, I don't know, every couple of days that thought just kind of runs through my head. And, and even though I, I don't know of anyone currently, I, I don't, uh, you know, no one's telling me, aside from the emails and whatnot, um, about it. And so, and I I feel tremendous, tremendous sadness, and I have tremendous empathy for those kids and people. And it, um, you know, really gets to me. Where 
as I, I don't know how many other people think about that. I mean, I'm sure some of y'all do, but I, I don't know if the average person thinks about that. So, Livy, I you know I know the feeling of having empathy. Or another example is climate change. Pretty much every day, I am feeling the pain of the planet and am uh, and am sad and angry and demoralized about it. Like it, it's I feel it all the time, and I'm just looking around at everyone like concerning themselves with going to the mall, and I'm just like, do you not see what's happening? <laughs> like we're we're going down the tubes on our planet, like, or, and, or I see politician, you know, like when Trump was president, like everyone would be, you know, concerning themselves with his dumb tweets. Like he, t- he, he'll tweet about some, he'll make a typo in a tweet or something. And everyone's just obsessing on it. I'm just like, look, people, they're bigger fish to fry than scrutinizing Donald Trump's tweets. Um, even things bigger than the riots that, are, that were happening. Like there are, there are bigger things than racism happening. Um, you know, racism is important. We we should march and we should talk about it. But we might not be around in 300 years to be racist. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, uh, so on that level, Olivia, you know, I can kind of relate to you on that. I was just like feeling that empathy for future humans, really, and and all the creatures on the planet who are going extinct on a daily basis. Like it, it rips me apart and I look around and I'm like, how come no one else cares? And, but I don't frame it as people compartmentalizing their empathy. It's just humans. We're just, we're really focused on what's happening generally right in front of us. And it's really hard for us to extend ourselves into things beyond that. And, you know, it makes sense. We evolved. That's how we evolved when we were, running around you know during the pleistocene we didn't it didn't benefit us to understand climate or the consequent the long-term consequences of our behavior or the ecology you know we we're just right in front of our face we got to feed our face we've got to procreate we got to take care of our own we got to attach you know and we're still those animals and it's just really hard for us anyway i'm i'm completely just rambling at this point <laughs> Listener Mona from Texas said, would you consider making a video on your favorite places in Seattle? I'm planning a surprise trip soon, and I would like to know your favorite places in Seattle. Yeah, Mona from Texas. It has been something that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's actually been on the list for a long time. And whenever I start to do it, I always think, ah, it's so self-indulgent. No one wants to, because most, I would say 99% of the people who listen to this podcast are, uh, follow me on YouTube aren't don't live in Seattle and don't plan to, or if they do live in Seattle, they already have their own f- favorite places. So I, f- I, it's something, and it would require a fair amount of research because I'm a really detail oriented person. And so if I were to get, if I were to give a definitive list of Seattle things, I, I, and I, and I already have done a fair amount of like writing, you know, it's like, okay, how do I, how do I narrow down my five favorite sandwich places in Seattle? <laughs> you know, cause I'm a list maker and I'm a Yelper. I, I, I've been using Yelp since like 2006 or something. And so, and I used to be one of those like elite Yelpers back. Actually, I was never elite, but because I couldn't be, but I, I would, I, w- I was always with the, I couldn't be an elite person because you needed to have your real picture on Yelp. And I, you know, as a therapist, I didn't want, 
you know, I just wanted to be free to provide like anonymous reviews on Yelp. And uh, anyway, Um, but I'll ramble for a second. So if you're in Seattle, uh, going to the top of the Space Needle is kind of a must. It's a it's a total tourist trap, and it's it's not cheap, but it's pretty cool. I mean the the Space Needle is pretty cool. The view from the Space Needle is is great. So you want to and even at nighttime, uh, it can be really it can be really nice. But daytime is preferred, obviously. And when you're at the Space Needle, you can also go to the Glass Museum, and you can also go to Seattle Center. You can go to the to the big fountain there. And maybe there'll even be a festival happening at Seattle Center because during during the summer months at, on the weekends, there's always there's usually something happening there. There uh, are so many other things. See, this is why I hate doing this because there's so many things I want to say. <laughs> um, there's a classic view where you can take great selfies on Queen Anne on the Seattle side. So there's lower Queen Anne, and then you go up the hill to Queen Anne. There's a little park up there. What's that? Is it called Cary Park? Anyway, if you remember from Fraser, uh, he must have lived on Queen Anne because his view of Seattle was, you know, out his patio door was that from Queen Anne. Anyway, so that's a nice place to go to. You can go to the Asian Art Museum. You can go to the Fry Art Museum. You can go to Seattle Art Museum. You can go to the Aquarium you can go on wings over the Washington, I think it's a thing. It's a ride that you can go on. You can go on the Ferris wheel, and the Ferris wheel is fine, but I don't know. Ferris wheels or whatever. Go on the ferry. Walk on the ferry. Uh, go to one of the go to Bainbridge and, and uh, go to the little town there and get an ice cream cone. Come back. Um, walk on the Burt Gilman Trail. Go to the Gum Wall. Go to Pike Place. See Improv Comedy at Post Alley. Go to the Antique Mall that used to be called Pacific Galleries, and now it's called something else in, in Soto. Go to the Arboretum. Go to the Wing Luke Museum. Go to Wajimaya, and, uh, the, Jap- the Japanese grocery store, and just meander around, maybe get a snack. Go to... Rock Box, which is a karaoke box place, which is really great. Go to Neighbors, the dance, the gay dance club, because it's fun. <laughs> Go to our place um, if it's not COVID times. See, this is why I don't like doing this. I'm, I'm stupid for even bringing this up. Um, walk on the waterfront. Go to um, uh, Myrtle Edwards Park and walk along the water there. Uh, or and walk along the waterfront. Go to Pike Place Market, of course. Um, it's it's not a Pike Place Market is fine, um, especially if you want to buy flowers and fish and food and stuff. Also, everyone always goes to the first Starbucks, which I don't recommend. And plus, I don't even think it's actually the first Starbucks. I think it's like a replication of the first Starbucks. Um, if you're really interested in Starbucks and coffee, actually on Capitol Hill they have like a almost like a museum Starbucks where they show you how they make all the beans and everything. It's kind of fancy up there. It's nice. Um, what else? <laughs> That's off the top of my head. All right. Just a few more, just two more. Oh my goodness. Two more emails. Uh, listener sky from Iowa says, what do I do to become a therapist like yourself? I am fascinated and intrigued by your approaches at therapy. And I really wish that, 
there were more like you. That being said, I was wondering what you did to get to the level that you're at. I'm not sure if you mentioned you were at a master's or what it was, but I'm having trouble finding out what to do if that's the career I want to pursue. I would really appreciate it, and thank you for your time. End of email. Well, without I've talked about this a lot before, um, and it would be boring to repeat all of it. Go to all my episodes, you know, on the website. Go to you know new clinicians tab. I think that's what it's called. Listen to all those episodes. But um, and you don't want to become like me. You, you just want to if you want to be. I don't know what you're saying, Sky, about me. Do you want to be a therapist who has a similar theoretical orientation, or do you want to be like a like a YouTube therapist? I don't know. But if you want to become a therapist that's similar to me, then yeah, you get a master's degree. That I, That's what I did. I got a master's. Years later, I went back and got another master's and a doctorate, which was mainly for academia to teach. But I never needed that other master's and doctorate. I, I only needed that first master's in marriage and family therapy. Technically, it was in psychology. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, you do that. And you find professors and books and other theoretical people who uh, orient towards what is attractive to you. And maybe that coincides with what I talk about. Um, another path <laughs> is you get a master's, you get through your program, and you listen literally to every episode that I talk about psychotherapy because there's a lot of content there. <laughs> if you want... If you want to absorb my model of humans and how to help them, I'm guessing that uh, the hours and hours and hours that I talk about it, you'd probably absorb it. <laughs> so, yeah, just getting a master's and listening to this podcast ad nauseum, I, I think, would at least give you the opportunity to absorb um, or bolster your point of view, which I, I'm, I'm guessing coincides with mine to some extent. Um. But if you wanted to become a, a professor, you can you can be at a master's level. You can be a professor, but it's more likely that you need a doctorate to become a full time professor. In all likelihood, you have to move these days, and that didn't used to be that way. But now, a lot of programs, including my program, hire we hire people from afar, meaning that we put out you know an application call that goes around the world, and so it's the likelihood of finding someone in Seattle that fits with us, you know, isn't very high because there's so many people all over the world that apply. And so, so there's that, but you can teach as an adjunct with masters um, to become a YouTube therapist. Again, all you need is a master's like the most successful therapist on YouTube is what's her name? Katie Morton. Is that her name? Um, and I believe she has a master's um, and not a doctorate, at least the last time i watched one of her videos and in that way you might want to have a broadcasting degree or something or some kind of uh you know sometimes i wonder if i could have accelerated the success of this podcast if i had someone telling me how to be a broadcaster you know all right this the last emails from listener liz from sweden she says what are good sources and research papers on the impact of loneliness for a person my boyfriend doesn't believe loneliness is harmful for a person he is a loner type, and I wish to find good examples of studies done on loneliness and its impact psychologically. Do you have any good resources? I've heard you speak about it multiple times. End of email. Well, I'm not good at keeping track of that kind of stuff, one. And two, I don't think that's really what you're asking. 
what it sounds to me, Liz, is that you're having a conflict with your boyfriend and he's saying he's a he's a loner and that hurts your feelings because he is distant from you. And as a way of trying to convince him to change, you're trying to come up with studies so you can blast him with a bunch of research that says that he's wrong and you're right, which I don't think is going to work. You're perfectly in the right to own your own feelings and to communicate them. I'm guessing you feel hurt that he's distant. I'm guessing you feel like he doesn't put effort into his relationship with you or doesn't express himself, his love for you enough, and that hurts your feelings. You're 100% entitled to that, and you don't need any research to back up that claim and that assertion. And if you go to couples therapy and you learn how to communicate it well, you learn both learn how to listen well, then that'll give them an opportunity to really hear that and maybe adjust a bit. Or you both just have to compromise. He says he's a loner type. Maybe that's just who he is. Um, based on your description, you know, if he if he just said, look, I'm a loner type and I I just don't like to interact a lot with people. And you're saying, hey, but, you know, Dr. Kirkonda says that loneliness is a problem. I would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, loneliness is a problem, but not for him. He's saying that he's okay. In fact, he's saying he's not lonely. He's just saying he likes to be alone. So there's a big difference between someone who prefers to be alone and someone who actually experiences loneliness. What it sounds like is you're lonely <laughs> and maybe you're incompatible with him or there's some dynamic between the two of you that is causing distance or something. Who knows? But um, that's what I'll say about that. All right. So that is the end of every single email. I can copy and paste all the last emails and put them in the doc for emails that I have already answered. Now, if you've emailed in, particularly recently, um, if you've emailed in recently, uh, the email is in the Gmail inbox, but it's not in the Google Doc yet because my wife hasn't put it there yet. Um, and so there's that. If you emailed a long time ago and I didn't get to it, it's either because I didn't understand the question, but in more likely, it's more likely what happened was I put that email in a different doc, Google Doc, that is specifically questions for me and Bob, questions for me and Berto, and questions for me and Rebecca. So, um, but I will celebrate with everyone right now. It is New Year's Eve, and I have achieved my goal of answering every single email. I didn't think I'd do it, honestly. I, I didn't think it was actually human, who made it possible. I mean, this episode is, how long is this episode? <laughs> this episode is three hours long, so <laughs> I guess there's that. And I'm guessing it's no longer New Year's Eve for you because um, this episode is so long. <laughs> so by the time you got to it, it's, this is, it's probably like February by now, by the time you get to this part. But anyway... I want to thank everyone for emailing in. When I first started this podcast, I always wanted it a component of the podcast to be, you know, a Q&A kind of thing. And um, the podcast was so unpopular in the beginning that no one emailed in. And when they did email in, it was such a big deal. I mean, I might literally get one email every six months uh, the first five years that I did the podcast, you know. And so... I remember getting emails back then and it just, 
it, it, I was so elated, you know, that someone is listening and would take the time to email in. And I still feel that. I still, every email that I get, I'm like, wow, you know, because for me, when I, I listen to podcasts and most of them I don't email into. And when I do email in, it's a big deal. You know, it's a, it's, it's vulnerable. And most, most of my experiences with podcasts is they never get back to me. Like I remember years ago, this would have been like 2007 or something. And I was listening to that podcast. Um, God, what's it called? It's like how, how things are made or how, um, how does that work? Or I can't, it's, it's a, it was a really popular pod. I think it still is a popular podcast, but it's like, you know, every episode's about like how, how racism is or how nine eleven happened. You know, everything's like a how anyway. And there were these two guys and I, I really liked them. And it was one of the first well-produced podcasts back in the day. And I took this chance and I emailed them and it was this really heartfelt email. And I wasn't expecting, you know, them to read it on air or, a, you know, a long response. I just wanted some acknowledgement, even from the team of email people that that I that they received it, you know, like some secretary or someone says, hey, thanks for the email. I'm going to pass it along. I'm sure that the boys will like it or something like that. I just wanted some indication, but I got nothing back. It just and maybe they read it and, and cried tears of joy. I don't know. But to get nothing back just felt really shitty. And I learned back then that I just never wanted to do that to my listeners, you know. Um, and all y'all ask really great questions. And a lot of our episodes are literally just me reading emails, which provides me opportunity to just make content from that. You know, it's it. So whenever people email and I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, if you never email and you're always on the fence about it, um, feel free. You don't have to, obviously, but just know that I'm, I read all the emails and we we're small enough that I can literally answer every email on the air <laughs> or at least try to by the end of the year. You know, some of these emails that I read in, in this doc, I, I don't know, but I think they might've been sent over a year ago, maybe two years ago. <laughs> so uh, they're probably no longer listening to the podcast, the people who emailed in. But anyway, I I really appreciate emailing in. I really appreciate you listening, you know, if, if we're being real here at the end of 2021. Um, you all, by listening, and particularly you patrons, you have defined my life. My life is like so great now because I'm doing exactly what I want to do, which is to make content for y'all to do deep dives, to make videos like this is, this has been my dream for 13 years and I've, I've arrived and I could not have been here if it weren't for you, if it weren't for you believing in me, I guess, or giving me the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> you know, cause you know, I say questionable things sometimes and, um, being my friend from afar and it's um it's incredibly I can't, I can't even tell you how I mean and for my wife too I mean she does a lot of work unofficially you know off the books if you will <laughs> for the podcast and our lives you know uh, right now for example she's watching 90 day fiance upstairs um 
we didn't even know about the show <laughs> until uh, you know a year and a half ago. I watched Love Is Blind during the pandemic, during the lockdown. I was like, well, I might as well maybe I'll try this reaction video thing. And then everyone's like, got to watch Ninety Fiance. And so now a good portion of our random conversations are about 90 day fiance characters, you know, Jasmine and Gino or whatever. And that's because of you, you know, it's because of you telling me to watch that show. And then I went, do you really want me to, do you, do you really want to watch me watch a TV show? Like who wants to watch that? And I did it. And then everyone was like, yeah, I like it. So I put more effort into it, blah, blah, blah. And my life has been completely altered and my wife's my wife's life has been completely altered because of you in in a really good way you know a really satisfying way a way that um feels good like i i've talked about this before but you know to be kind of specific my enjoyment at my job at the university was waning um, a lot over the last, I don't know, five years, six years or something. And I was kind of looking for a way out, but I depended on that income and I depended on the benefits. And I, I was just like, oh, I mean, it'd be really a huge stretch for me to step away from that. But when we got more patrons, I was like, okay, maybe now I can finally step away from the university. I love the students but the paperwork and the administrative crap and the meetings and the the red tape and the small the uh busy work that you have to do as a professor i mean everyone always thinks oh you're a professor like you teach all day and i'm like nope i barely teach like there would be you know quarters terms where you know i'm full time at the university and i teach for 3 hours a week and all the other hours I'm spending at the university are doing stuff that I'd rather not do meetings and busy work and forms and committees and emails and, you know, zoom meeting, you know, it was just, um, and some people like that. And I, I liked it in the beginning for, I'd liked it for many years. You know, I've been at the university for 24 years, 25 years. So yeah, I, I, I liked it and or tolerated it, but at a certain point you just go, ah, get me out. And y'all let me do that by becoming a patron and literally paying my bills. You patrons literally pay me and my wife's bills so that we can do this thing. We would not be able to do it if it weren't for you. So thanks for that. Like hugely. And please don't ever not be a patron. Please don't ever cancel. Because <laughs> then I'll have to go back. I don't want to go back. I don't want to, you know. And I don't, if I go back, I got to cut back of the podcast which i don't i don't want to do anyway I don't, i'm not threatening anyone <laughs> i'm trying to save some money in case that happens who knows anyway um so but yeah emails thanks for that and um thanks for putting your heart and soul in some of these emails and i'm sorry if i wasn't i feel i probably should have said this in the beginning i feel a lot of guilt for not being able to fully answer every question. You know, I, I had to rip through them quickly. Um, I still gave them a lot more time than I was planning. I was like, well, if, you, if you're going to answer all these questions, you can really only spend like 90 seconds on each question. But obviously I didn't do that, but, but I do feel bad. And, um, but it was either I did that or I never addressed the question on on the air ever. You know what I mean? It literally was, that was the choice. And I, I chose 
door number one because I'd rather have some response than no response because I know what that feels like. And anyway, so happy new year. Here's to 2022. Here's to putting, well, I feel like 2022 is going to look a lot like 2021. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it just, uh, like, can we just skip to 2023 or 2024? Whenever this pandemic is over, like, can we just skip to that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, uh, there are good things. Let's appreciate, you know, remember I was talking about earlier. Let's, let's, let's look on, let's look, let's appreciate. Let's appreciate that we're all still here on this planet. Let's appreciate that we have our loved ones and whatever health we have left. Let's appreciate even the people that have left us or pets that have left us that we did have that, you know, it's better to have loved than lost than to never have loved at all. And love is wonderful. You know, my, previous pets that I've had I don't regret getting them even though they they die early in my opinion and what a special mem- I have so much special memories of my pets that have died and I have special memories of the humans that have died so we can appreciate that we can appreciate our capacity for love and our capacity for compassion and understanding and our you know at least Y'all, I'm guessing, have a dedication to compassion for self and others. And you can really pat yourself on the back for that because you deserve it. You really, really do. 